0: welcome to crosscast where we discuss the modern relevance of the bible from the christian point of view we shed light on subjects uncommon in the church
1: and bring clarity to the gray zones and in all cases
0: glorify god so once again welcome to crosscast
1: Hello everyone, we are back with another episode here and this one's going to be a little different. We are in between two series. We just concluded the Bible Prophecy series and then now uh, in front of us, we're gonna do the Spiritual Warfare series. But in between right here is something that I've had on my mind ever since we started the podcast and there's something peculiar that I've noticed in the Bible and so that's what this episode is gonna be about. Here's what I've noticed, and I can't say how long ago it was or when it was, but everybody knows John 3.16. That's one of the first right. verses that you you know memorize, which is a good verse, excellent verse. And so everyone says John 3.16. That is the single most identifiable verse in probably all the Bible because it talks about our salvation. That was one of the verses that I actually memorized in my young um, years as a Christian, and then there was another verse, Second um, Timothy chapter three verse sixteen, that stood out to me was very important to doctrine and talks about what the word is and things of that nature. I was like, "Hmm, I can remember that." Second Timothy three sixteen. Yeah, and then as time went on, months, years, what have you. So what I noticed with all of these, chapter three verse sixteen verses and passages located throughout all the various books is that it's a very important key verse. It's a very prominent verse. It may speak to something that's doctrinal. So tonight I've put together 37 different locations in the Bible of the 66 books where there is a chapter three, verse 16 that really stands out. It's either a really big story that's important to you know, Christianity and, and how we progressed through the Old Testament into the Gospels and New Testament. And as I was putting this together, it, it was really kind of cool because it actually highlights so much from Genesis to Revelation. So it's going to be a real quick zoom through the Bible, but there's some really peculiar things and other stuff. It's like, wow, okay, that's an interesting story. But you know, the thing is I didn't do every single chapter three, verse 16, because some of it was just, didn't even
0: make sense to just quote that one verse. And the funny part about that is we're going to be running through the Bible. But if you're turning along with you, it's like, what page? It's like literally three yeah. yeah, sixteen. just what move chapter? to the next book. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Because so, you have that moment in church, like take out your Bibles. Yeah. And you're sitting there like ready to go, like thumb on the page. And mm-hmm. you're like, just,
1: just say where. So, uh, and, I, and I'm going to go through these things in chronological order. So if I skip a book, it's either because there was no chapter three, verse 16, or it's because I just chose not to incorporate it into this little run through here. Here we go. Genesis chapter three, verse 16, first book. Um, This is an important one. This is the judgment on man, woman, and Satan in the Garden of Eden after the fall of mankind. And this really sets the stage for what must now occur in the future throughout the world how God's going to be dealing with mankind, it reads, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And that's verse 16, but it also talks about the judgment on Satan that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And so we have a prophesying of the redemption of mankind Jesus Christ is prophesied to come and to redeem mankind. So right out of the gate, Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, we have the fall of mankind with the the sin in the garden and then also the judgment on mankind for that sin, the judgment on Satan for his part in the whole thing, and then the prophecy of redemption all right there. And again, I'm talking just right around verse
0: 16 as well. We're talking about 15, 16, 17, so on. So here's my question with this. What do you think it means when it says your desire shall be for your husband? I get where he's saying I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In other words, childbirth is going to hurt in pain. You should bring forth children going to hurt, but then it says your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So what exactly does that mean? When it says your desire will be for your husband, my understanding,
1: and again, I could be a little bit off here, but my understanding is is that the woman was wanting to be in charge, wanting mm. to be in authority. That was part of the temptation that Satan in the garden was, you can become like gods. You can have the knowledge of good and evil. And basically God's holding back your potential. So she's wanting this authority, this control, this power. So did Adam. I mean, so did mankind. Okay, I mean, you know, man. Um, so it's not just her but this was the judgment that god gave is that he will now develop the family where the man is now the head of the household and that's all there is to it and this is where we start seeing this that the husband's going to be the head and then you see this later on in areas of like ephesians chapter
0: 5 the design
1: of the christian family as per the bible
0: but what's funny is when you get into ephesians 5 the design of the christian family works beautifully and it seems like that's just how it was always meant to be here. This is a punishment. Mm-hmm. Your punishment is you're number two, right. which honestly any feminist listening right now is losing it. Probably just got a few thumbs so, down. Yeah. Right. Some, a lot of people just turn this off, Right, but that's the Bible. Get right. Mean,
1: well, and I mean, and to, to be straightforward, this has nothing to do with who's better than the other. That's not even what this right. discussion is. It's just saying this person is going to be responsible to God, the husband, the man of the house, will be responsible to God for the family. He is to basically serve his family, provide for his family, pray for his family, lead his family in biblical ways. And so there's this call for service, this call for provision and so on and so forth, where he's responsible to God for his family. You know, and Ephesians talks about submit to one another. So the husband submits to the wife, the wife submits to the husband, but yes, the husband is the head. That's the role. That's how he designed it. It's a good design and it's nothing demeaning or disrespectful to the wives or the women because God made it a point to make sure that the husband will take care of his wife. Right. That's huge. That's a very large call for the husband to be there in almost every single way possible, humanly possible for sure, for his wife. So it's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing
0: in the way of the husband will provide. So if you look at Ephesians chapter five, though, what it says is husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And in that description, it's he died for it. He gave everything, including himself for the church. So equally you give everything and yourself for your wife. Absolutely. I wouldn't plan
1: on discussing this, but the husband is the defender of the home. He's the first line of defense when harm may threaten the family. And, up to including his own, like you say, sacrificial death of himself in effort to save his family. And we are called to be
0: the protector, the fighter, the warrior of our homes. Okay, so then moving to Exodus 3.16, you have the situation of the burning bush, which is Moses, and he's out in the wilderness tending sheep and comes upon a bush that's burning, but the bush is not being burnt, it's just simply engulfed in flame. Um, and a voice comes out and says, "Take off your shoes, you're standing on hallowed ground. And so he takes off his shoes. And then the bush is talking to him saying, "I've seen the suffering of my people, and I will send you." And so verse 3:16 it says, "Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, "The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob, appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. So from that point, you move into the entire story of Moses tries to barter with God, tries to say, no, not me. I'm not very good. I don't speak well. And God says, okay, you can have your brother. Um, And every excuse that Moses kind of comes up with, God's like, no, you were raised in Pharaoh's house. That wasn't an accident. Mm -hmm. This is all by design. And so you kind of see the story taking place. So if you're starting in Genesis and you have the fall of man, kind of in between these two, you had Abraham striking a covenant with God that the nation of Israel would come from him. And then the nation fell into slavery in Egypt. And so here you have really one of the first times that God is saying, no, I'm going to deliver my people. We have a deal. Absolutely. Look at the name of the book. Exodus,
1: Exodus from what? Exodus means to exit out of something. So in this case that we're talking, of course, the Bible, just as you said, the Jewish people were in slavery in Egypt and so this is the moment where God calls Moses and says, I have appointed you to go and lead the Exodus out of Egypt. So again, this linchpin verse, right in the middle of this book, what it's all about, this is exactly when it starts, right here. This is the command, the commission, and this is also where we get, for the first time in the Bible, where God refers to himself, I am that I am. God is so huge, there's no way to package in one little description of who God is, because he's so much, he's so many different things. He's a savior, he's a healer, he's a deliverer, and so on and so forth. I am that I am sent you. This is where we get that. And you know, just as we mentioned in Genesis, the start of it all was in the garden. There it was, the fall, the first domino for the whole journey through the Bible to where we get to the end to be with Christ in heaven, in the new Jerusalem, without any more sin. It starts right there in Genesis 3.16. And then, you know, it's really cool. So Leviticus chapter three, verse 16, the next one. This is where God is... Instructing his people in how to give God a peace offering. In Leviticus, this book, it was largely about the tribe of Levite. That's where we get the word Leviticus. Levitical priests. Exactly. And what was their responsibilities? The temple. So everything from what the temple looked like, the tools in the temple, their procedures of sacrifice— the different holiday, we call them holidays, but it was like appointed times, you do this type of offering, you do this type of atonement, you do this type of sacrifice or what have you. And it's all laid out in Leviticus. Again, chapter three, verse 16, it says, and the priest shall burn them on the altar as food an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma, all the fat is the Lord's. It's exactly what they were supposed to do to bring peace between them and God, and this is a, isn't that what we want? We want peace with God. Whenever we're in our sin, we're dead in our sin, we're not at peace with God. Right. We have this little saying, go make your peace with God. Here it is, a linchpin verse in Leviticus about how to do these things. Again, all pointing to when Jesus shows up to be our sacrificial lamb to bring everlasting peace. Because
0: why? He's the prince of peace, the Bible says. It's Really cool. Yeah, and that's actually one of the interesting things about the Old Testament, about Israel is, um, when they come into the land, God's divvying up the goods like, hey, this tribe, you guys get this, this tribe, y'all get this, this tribe, y'all are over here. Mm-hmm. Levi, you don't get land. Right. You get to be the priest. And here's an entire book of the Bible on how to do your job. It's spot on.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. Everybody got land except for Levi, the, the tribe of Levite. They got 35 acres, you know, basically. Of, you know, in the end, whenever they established where Mount Moriah
0: was and they set up the temple there later on, Solomon's temple. But then you fast forward to the New Testament and they've made a life out of it. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. they're exchanging money in the temple. Hey, you got to have
1: temple money. The old money changers.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And oh, you got to buy, look, these are pre approved lambs for sacrifice. This is the one you give us your lamb. You get temple t shirts, temple robes, stuff like that. Yeah. They'd made a whole business out of it and at the same time saying, look, here's a whole book. We have a whole book to guide us. You listen to us. Oh yeah, no, for
1: sure. In the beginning they were told exactly what they needed to do. Period. There's no two ways about it, you know. And then in the end, we know where it walked to whenever Jesus was dealing with them in the temple and overturning the tables and right calling them out on their on their sin.
0: But these are the people that literally Christ spent the most animosity with. Not with Rome, not with sinners, not with Judas who stabbed him in the back, with these people, with the, with the Levitical priests. These are the people that he called whitewashed tombs, you brood of vipers. So I want you to
1: remember, just a second, we're going to go to Numbers next, but then hold that thought about what you just said about
0: divvying up everything, okay? All right. So in Numbers 3.16, it says, So Moses numbered them according to the word of the Lord as he was commanded. And what is the book called? Numbers. And so, what does yeah. it say? So Moses
1: numbered them. It's Dude, kind of, that's.
0: <laughs> that it's was, like when Moses was writing these books, he's like, "What's this book's about? The priests, Le, Leviticus." Yeah. What was I doing in this book? I was, I was counting stuff, numbers. Yeah. Well, you know,
1: and the thing is, you know, my my commentary this, Numbers chapter three verse sixteen. That's the banner verse. What do you think it's going to be about? It's going to be about numbers numbering. And then here it is. So that just ironic to me again, it's pretty much what the name of the book is. And if you go through numbers, that's one of the ones that people love. They love to skip over Leviticus. They love to skip over numbers because in Leviticus you have all these measure, you know, 18 furlongs and so many cubits and so many talents. And it's like, I don't know what that is. Just, I mean, give me inches, give me pounds, give me feet, whatever and you just get burned out. You don't even know what they're building. It's like you're reading this blueprint to build something and you don't even know what it is. You're just like, you know what? Let's just move on to the next book. You land in Numbers. It's like, and in this tribe and with all his family and all his people's was blah, blah, blah. And then in this family, and it's like chapters yeah. of that. And you're like, oh, these people aren't even here anymore, man. I don't even know what this even means. Let's move to the next one. And so people kind of get burned out. But truly there is importance to all of these things. Again, you look at Leviticus. Um, you, this picks back up in Hebrews chapter 9 specifically about what, what we have going on in heaven, that God gave Moses the instructions on how to build the earthly things because that is a representation of the right. real things in heaven. Um, and then in Numbers, there's very, very specific detailed lineage where we get to, like in the Gospels, where it goes to the lineage through the generations to Jesus Christ to establish that he is the rightful heir to the throne of David and so on and so forth. So these things are very critical. They're very important.
0: Right. But basically the book of numbers is like a census and large. Absolutely. There's yeah. other I mean, there's stories in there,
1: but this is still all Moses writing these things and things are right. going on with that process of, you know, coming out of Egypt and then going towards where God was trying to get them to go. They're a little bit slow, you know, but they ended up there later. So absolutely. Now, then remember what you're talking about with, The divvying up, here it is, in Deuteronomy, God gives his people the promised land, and in verse 16 of chapter three, and to the Reubenites and to the Gadites, I gave Gilead as far as the river Arnon, the middle of the river as the border, as far as the river Jabbok, the border of the people of Ammon, and it goes on and on. So that was just one little, right in the middle of it. Deuteronomy chapter three, verse 16, and this is, god fulfilling his promise starting back in exodus giving them the promised land giving you know starting to establish where they're going to resident and you know be made a country
0: and this is very important so then in joshua three sixteen, that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at adam the city that is beside zertan So the waters that went down into the sea of Arabah, the salt sea failed and were cut off and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. So what they're talking about is they're carrying the Ark of Covenant to the water, but I find it fascinating with the Ark of the Covenant that it's an interesting topic in the, in the Bible world, I guess, because nobody knows where it is currently. There's all kinds of theories about where the Ark of the Covenant went and, and
1: things of that nature. You ask, what's the big deal about the Ark of the Covenant? Well, the Ark of the Covenant was a central piece in the Holy of Holies in the temple that the Jews were in charge of, the Levitical priests that we just spoke of. And we're looking, as we've mentioned before, about the temple to be built to reestablish these practices of these Jewish sacrifices and things of that nature because Orthodox Jews still desire to do this because they're still practicing Jews using the old Testament to conduct their, their worship and their religion. Right. And we know that the Bible says this temple will be built because that's where the antichrist will appear before the return of Christ. So do they need the ark of the covenant? If they do, where is the ark of the covenant? When are they going to get it? You know, times ticking, we're moving closer. So that's why this debate arises and the ark of the covenant is so important from that aspect of prophecy. Right. And I've heard a lot of debates about, can they build another one? Is that acceptable? There's even been discussion about, do they need one? Right. You know, a lot say, yeah, they do. They need it or
0: something. There's a few that say, no, they don't. Right. And I was listening to one thing they were talking about. Is it made out of solid gold? In which case it could still exist today. Or, oh, is it carved and then gold plated? In which case the wood would have failed by now. and It would just be gold plating left in a pile. Somebody would have melted that down. And so there's so much conversation about it, nobody has any answers. And
1: just to give a little bit more clarity to this story, let me read 15, uh, 16, and 17. We read 16, but it's kind of interesting. It says, And those who bore the ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priest who bore the ark dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all of its banks during the whole time of the harvest. And this is the verse 16 we already read, that the waters which came down from the upstream stood still, rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zaratan, so the waters that went down to the sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, failed and were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Verse seventeen. Then the priest who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on the dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. Now this is much like the deliverance in Exodus whenever Moses part of the Red Sea. Well, God part of the Red Sea, right. but you know what I'm talking about. And then here we have another split and another body of water, a river. So that way they could go across on dry ground to go exactly where God was leading them. It's a very powerful moment of God delivering them and, and fulfilling his promise. So I think this was a very cool verse to mention in this Bible 316 series.
0: Right. Well, and also it does another thing is it takes the person of Moses off the table. Yes. So anybody who said, oh, Moses parted the Red Sea, Moses was leading the people. Now Moses is dead, but God's spirit and God's promise represented in the Ark of the Covenant, hence covenant Mm -hmm. promise, you know, deal. They walk into the middle of the water. The water stops by God. A A river stops flowing and in fact backs up and builds up on this end. Cuts off on the other, and it's like, hey, it's just going to wait for the entire nation to go across. Then the priests will step out, and the waters can continue nature again.
1: Yes. And we know that Moses was not allowed to enter into the promised land because of his disobedience. Right. And so Joshua kind of carried the leadership from that point forward, again, crossing into the, the promised land, which we just read. And this was God bringing them in. And then we lead into the subduing the giants in the land and things of that nature whenever they were establishing their kingdom moving into first samuel chapter 3 verse 16 this is the call for samuel to step into ministry and he is asleep and he hears someone calling his name and then after the third time eli realizes that samuel is actually hearing from god Yeah, And so he says, hey, go back and listen because God speaks. And so the verse is very simple. It says, then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, he answered, here I am. And so this is that moment when Samuel, for the first time, gets connected with God directly because in the Old Testament, God used prophets and Samuel was a prophet. And Samuel was very key for many things in the Old Testament that we read so this right. was the call of Samuel into ministry. It's very big, very uh huge occasion here.
0: Well it's very interesting also because Samuel's lying in bed and he hears a voice that says, Samuel. And so he gets up and he goes to Eli and he says, Here I am. And Eli says, What well, I I didn't call you, go back to bed. And so on the third time he says, The next time that happens, say speak, Lord, your servant is listening. So he goes back to the bed and And then you hear Samuel, he says, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And then God just starts speaking to him like, oh, you know, like now you got the magic words. Now you get it. Now you understand that it's not somebody in the room calling you. And it's
1: also interesting that there was three times, I don't know if there's something to that, but maybe there is of this three times something's done. I don't know. It happened three times, but. This is a big moment forever changing Samuel's life and basically
0: commissioning him as a prophet. Right, we come from that because from that point on he can never say I don't know the voice of God. However it is that voice sounds audibly, however it is that God speaks, however it is that he was hearing it, he will never forget that. He will recognize that every time it speaks Throughout his life. Okay, I wanna I wanna I wanna set this next one up.
1: Um this is first Kings chapter three, verse sixteen. And I wanna read the verse and then we'll go from there. Okay, so this is the verse. Now two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. That's verse sixteen. <laughs> okay. Now then. What's going on here? <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. So concubine applications right so i i not exactly but um without reading everything verbatim and short these two women come to the king and they bring a baby and they're fighting over the baby and so they're saying this is my kid the other one's saying no this is my kid and so the king has to make a decision here and so in this particular situation king solomon holds up the baby and he decides that he's going to chop the baby in half. Right. That way you, it's all equal. Everybody gets a piece of the baby, right? And then one of the um one of the women say, "No, you know what? Just let the baby live." I withdraw, let the other woman take the child. And then King Solomon says, "Then you will take the baby, the one who said, please don't kill the child, showing the concern, the true, genuine care for the well-being of the kid, while the other woman is like, great, let's just half it right now, you know? Right. Um, so anyway, very interesting story. Um, King Solomon about to cut a baby in half in order to settle the dispute.
0: Well, it's a situation that Solomon had prayed his whole life for wisdom. He had prayed for wisdom, and it's one of those situations of well, what do you do here? You got two women here saying that's my baby and this is before the days of DNA testing. So what do you do? Well, you threaten the child. <laughs> See which one cares. Well, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Obviously you order a soldier to slice a baby in half which is going to ruin his day. Equally. Equally. Yeah, equally. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, that was an interesting story. So Second Chronicles 3.16 says he made wreaths of chain work, as in the inner sanctuary, and put them on top of the pillars. And he made 100 pomegranates and put them on the wreaths of chain work. So, what we're talking about is Solomon building Solomon's temple. The first temple. Right. And he's decorating it. But so, this is the first temple. This is Solomon's temple. And then after that, you have Herod's temple, which is the day of Jesus, which we talked about. And then in the tribulation time, you have the tribulation temple. Now then, moving right into Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 16.
1: We just mentioned Solomon building the first temple. Here, we have Nehemiah constructing the wall of the second temple, which this would be the temple eventually to be the one that Christ entered in and did his thing in his day, okay? We call it Herod's temple. It says, after him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, leader of half the district of Bethzer, made repairs as far as the place in front of the tombs of David to the man made pool and as far as the house of the mighty. And it you know goes on to talk about all these things and, you know, the wall was defended and all this other but this is in the midst of I know that the verse is kind of obscure, but the point is is that it's in the midst of the rebuilding process of the second temple, which is highly important. Well, and that's
0: the temple that Christ comes into.
1: Right. And the one that he prophesied that not one stone be left on top of each other. That's the one that he's looking at and he prophesies the dismantling of the temple as part of the judgment on the Jewish
0: nation for rejecting the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so that's one of the interesting things about the book of Nehemiah is Solomon's temple has been destroyed. Jerusalem has been ransacked. The people have been taken into service or servitude. And yet Nehemiah serves the king. The Persian king and yet he goes to the Persian king and he says you know I'm mourning my my city my people's city our heritage it has no walls and he's got no right to ask it and yet Artaxerxes tells him well then go rebuild your walls take what you need it means nothing to the Persian kingdom and yet that's the providence of God in that moment that he put it on Nehemiah's heart and Nehemiah said well I am in service to the king and Jerusalem is under the rule of the king, I can make no move without the king's approval, and yet for absolutely no reason at all, the king approves it. Yeah,
1: it was just totally God. I mean, there was no motive, no gain. It was just God said it was going to happen, and then he just impressed upon the empire to allow it. It It's just totally God, providential.
0: But it's an interesting happening, because back in Exodus, you have a situation of, and then God hardened Pharaoh's heart, Well, here you have a situation of, and then God softened Artaxerxes' heart. Yeah, moved upon him. Right. and pressed upon him.
1: Yeah, it's a huge display of how God is in control of empires and kings. You
0: know, he puts them both up and he puts them both down. So totally awesome. So then moving on, we get to Proverbs 3.16, which says, length of days is in her right hand and her left hand riches and honor. And what it's talking about is, it's talking about wisdom, but it's putting it to the reference of her or a female. Now, the interesting part about that is that Proverbs was written by Solomon. And we just talked about how Solomon prayed for wisdom and exercised wisdom in the case of, you know, splitting a baby or at least threatening to. Yeah, Same guy, same guy writing this. Right. He was seen as one of the, just the wisest and he prayed for wisdom, and it says God blessed him with wisdom.
1: Well, and what stood out here for me is just the first three words of that verse, length of days. And whenever you read through Proverbs, there's all kinds of truths, and I'm not just going to say, like, it's good suggestions. It's good recommendations. It's No, it's literally words to live by because it's the Bible, and there's all kinds of instruction about – how to conduct ourselves around our family and in the community and so on and so forth. But the bottom line is, is like the wages of sin is death. And so if you're going to live a rebellious life in sin, then your days are going to be shortened because of the consequence of your wicked behavior. If you live to please the Lord, generally speaking, your days will be lengthened because of you're obedient so you're you're where you're supposed to be. You're not out living a nightlife, living the fast life, tearing down your body, but instead you're trying to take care of your body, you're trying to do what God's called you to do. He's anointing you to do that. He's protecting you, he's giving you provision. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't things such as, you know, you have a child that becomes sick and then passes away or that there's no such thing as martyrdom because there is. Okay? There are the circumstances where God calls people home early, okay? I'm just saying, generally speaking, you live a life that is honoring to God. You're typically going to last longer physically on the planet because you're not tearing down the outward temple of your being, of your body.
0: Well, and you can get into an, an entire discussion about stewardship and all the things that we're called to steward, but one of the things you're called to steward is your own body, the temple of God.
1: Yeah, and it's very important because this gets into things of, drunkenness to stay away from that right. uh, sexual sin to stay away from that and how you know women are to be modest and how men are to protect the weaker vessel and all these other things and this is getting more into a physical discussion so it's important there's a lot there but i felt like this was pretty cool because it talks about the length of days as in her right hand and we see that all the time that the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom wisdom leads to righteous decisions in your life and then that as a result gives you reward of all kinds of things to include a longer life i mean look at one of the commandments it says honor your father and your mother that your days might be made longer you know there's that reward for doing what we're called to do so anyway i thought that was really cool really important especially in that book of proverbs jeremiah chapter 3 verse 16 this one's pretty cool Then it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, that they will say no more. The ark of the covenant of the Lord, it shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made any more. What's interesting about this particular passage in the Bible is that that was one verse in this multiple paragraphs, if you will, where God is calling his people back to him, to repentance. There's things starting around verse six of chapter three. The Lord said also to me in the days of Josiah the king, have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? And then skip down to verse seven. And I said, after she had done all these things, return to me, but she did not return. And her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And then later on in verse 14, return, O backsliding children. And so this was just in the midst of this call to repentance and repentance in the Bible is everything for salvation. And we're already seeing it in the old Testament. So, you know, again, this wasn't necessarily about this one particular verse It's the fact that this verse was right in the middle of a really strong word of God to his people saying, stop backsliding, repent turn to me, turn from your wickedness. It's a call to repentance. And that is uh, very
0: important to the Christian believer even today. Right. And the entire old Testament has so many situations where God's saying to Israel, yeah, you turned your back on me again. So I disciplined you in this way. You know, in fact, that's the entire purpose of what we were talking about with the tribulation period in the last seven years, the 70th week of Daniel, it's the end of their punishment. Right. Even though they are God's people, there's still children and they're still getting grounded throughout the entire course of this lifetime that we know. Right, and
1: Hebrews talks about that. It says that a good father would discipline his child or his children, and if he didn't discipline his children, then he would not be a good father. So it's kind of what you're saying. This disobedience produces whatever, judgment, chastisement, discipline, correction, rebuke, so on and so forth, to bring his people back in line. And this is the fundamental thing of how we have our relationship with God even today, and we see it in the Old Testament. Okay, I'm going to set this one up for Adam here. So Lamentations chapter 3, verse 16, the book of Lamentations. So what do you think could be highlighted in chapter 3, verse 16? I'd say what. Probably a
0: glorious worship song.
1: (laughs) Okay, so that's Adam's. That's Adam's guess. He's going to go with that. So with that, Adam, read for us Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 16, and let's see if we can get a feel for the context here.
0: He has also broken my teeth with gravel and covered me with ashes. Okay, so Adam was completely... Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah.
1: (laughs) So uh, the only thing I want to point out there is that... uh, there's some lamenting going on, and uh, it's happening in chapter 3, verse 16 also.
0: Yeah, and that's another thing. I don't think enough people understand the name of the book, Lamentations. It means lament. Lamentations. Yeah. So it's just lamenting. If you don't know what lamenting is, you're complaining. Yeah, right. You're, you're saying, life is so bad for Whoa me. Is me. <laughs> yeah, so anyway. Yeah, which is pretty much like all of Twitter. So verse 16, uh, he has also
1: broken my teeth with gravel. Wow, I, I mean... If that really happened, that's painful. And, yeah. and then while you're down on the ground, crying and weeping and just in pure misery, then poof, ashes all over you. <laughs> <laughs> so there's the minting. All right. Oh,
0: you're gonna have to wash your hair. Yeah.
1: All right, here we go. Ezekiel chapter three. Um, I went ahead and threw in also verse 17 after we read verse 16 this is really important for all believers, I believe. Can I say that? God makes Ezekiel a watchman. We know this. And this kind of explains some of the responsibility of watchmen. And in Ezekiel, he talks about if you see a threat coming and you're the watchman positioned at your post and you have the advantage or the vantage point and you see the the threat coming, well, then you alert those that you communicate with. You alert those around you, those that are in your community, your family. And you say, hey, we got danger coming. Everybody get ready, Um, be prepared. And if the people do not heed the warning, well, then the blood is not on your hands. They're responsible for their own demise because they didn't heed the warning. Now, if you're supposed to be the watchman and you either aren't paying attention or you see the the danger coming and then you choose not to alert the people, well then now guess what? Their demise is now on your hands. And so that's what's you know being referenced here. So again, Ezekiel chapter three, verse 16 and 17. Now it came to pass at the end of the seven days that the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. Wow, what a commission to Ezekiel, as a watchman and what a command of responsibility that we have as christian believers especially the more mature we become in the bible in the word that we need to be telling other people about hey be careful you know you do not want to yeah. um, provoke god you do not want to test god typically we quickly go to you know sin quit doing that sin but this could also maybe it's something that a brother or sister in the Lord needs to be doing for Christ. Hey, maybe you need to be doing this ministry, and you want to encourage them in that right way, and you don't want them to be outside the will of God. But wow, I mean, powerful stuff. Again, three sixteen all over the place.
0: Right, and see, and you're you're kind of like the watchman in my life more than most other people because you're the person that's going to be watching. For anybody who doesn't know, Phil watches earthquakes. Phil watches the political world. Phil, me, if I watch politics too long. I get into arguments with people. And so I have to tune out of politics for a couple of weeks until like, I don't know what Trump's doing in the office right now. And then I can watch it again because then it's all fresh and new and I'm still kind of happy about it. Not that I oppose Trump, but it's just, I'll take that information I'll go to work with it. I'll make jokes because I joke other people will be upset and arguments ensue. So Phil can literally watch earthquakes and, political news and keep up with what's going on with different churches around the U S and I will get like almost daily reports from Phil like, Hey, you want us going on with Hillsong today? (laughs) Like not really, but yeah, send it to me. I'll look at it. And so no, but you, you really fill this role for me in my life. Like you're that person that if something goes crazy, it's like, well, I'll probably hear from Phil before anybody else. Like like, I'm going to hear it from Phil.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I've, Matt you yeah know, I appreciate the uh, the sharing here, but my focus of what's going on in the world is I'm very concerned. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. Like, yeah. it matters to me. It matters of my decision making or my prayer life or things that I can see coming. And it's kind of like a combination of it's It impacts my life. Uh, I'm looking at it through God's point of view. The biblical point of view. Some of it's interesting. Some of it's you know gets into things like science or like you mentioned, like earthquakes and stuff. Right. And you know some of these things I have interest in, but but in all reality, if I'm not doing what I'm called to do, then I feel like I'm failing. So it, there is a bit of a call and obligation that I feel, and if I see something coming, regardless of what it is, let's just take the mark of the beast because we love talking about it right here, right? <laughs> And if somebody, if somebody takes the mark of the beast and ends up in hell and we're up there at the day of judgment and they look over at me, you know, assuming pre-trib rapture. So I got raptured out, but I forgot to mention before I got raptured, Hey, don't take the mark of the beast, buddy. And then they did. And then they're on their way to bust hell wide open during the day of judgment. And they're looking at me like, Hey, Philip, you knew about this, didn't you? Yeah, I sure did. Um, why didn't you mention it? You know i don't really know i just didn't think it was important at the time right. you know and they're like well you know what's about to happen to me now right i mean th- i'm totally watering down this whole scenario but on a more serious note like something like that kind of goes through my mind i want to be more purposeful and and bringing up these things of again a watchman watch out <laughs> watch out be careful yeah. you know this is danger this could provoke god And if I don't do that, then I feel like I'm not doing what God's told me to do. And I believe that this podcast is a part of that too. Like if we're not doing this, I'm gonna be doing something else, but we're doing this, I'm loving it. And this is something where whoever's listening, you're hearing the warning, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, become born again, read the word, understand the word, do the word. And if you don't, then, hey, I told you so. It's not because it's my rules, it's just, God said it, I'm understanding it, I'm I'm reminding, I'm encouraging, I'm praying for you. And so, yeah, it's a call. But I love this, man. Ezekiel, the whole stuff about the Watchmen. Just do some searches in Ezekiel about Watchmen, some cool stuff. Well, the whole book of Ezekiel is pretty crazy. Anyway. Absolutely. Portals, all kinds of cool stuff. Oh, God made bones. Yeah, the, the Valley of Dead Bones and the Kingdom of God in chapter 40 on the kingdom of god whenever christ comes back. It's some cool stuff. Yeah. Ezekiel's
0: a cool, cool book. So then Daniel, chapter 3, verse 16. And this is also going to include 17 and 18. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king, "O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace." And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. So what's going on here is Nebuchadnezzar is the king. Israel is subservient under the the Babylonian empire. Nebuchadnezzar declares himself a god, builds a big statue, says, hey, every day when the music plays, everybody bows. To the statue, that's what it is. Music plays. They don't bow. They get arrested. He's saying, "Dude, this is your last chance. Bow, or you're going in that giant furnace." Their response: They're saying, "Oh, King, our God will save us. But even if He doesn't, we're just not going to do that. Like we're we're not going to turn our back. We're not going to have another God. We're not going to worship anybody who's not our God. No golden image is worthy of it." And then just bringing it to fruition, he throws them in the furnace. And then the king turns to the guy next to him and says, didn't we throw in three men? He's like, yeah, we throw in three guys. He's like, well, I'm counting four. And one of them looks like God. One of them looks like, you know, the son of man, like an angel. Um, And he says, get them out. And three guys walk out. And he's like, okay, you win. (laughs) And they don't even smell of smoke. Yeah. And, you know, this story is one of the ones that
1: you would learn growing up in church as you know, one of the Bible stories in Sunday school. It's the part where it says, and even if God doesn't deliver me, like it's that part right there. It's like, wow. I mean, the faith was already there that he can. And even if he doesn't, we're not going to do this. And man, that's so powerful. That speaks so much about having the faith in God, no matter what, about having the servitude and the commitment to God, no matter what. There's nothing that's going to, replace my obedience to the Lord right no distraction no hobby no interest no threat I value my life more than I value my walk with Jesus none of that all that I count forfeit and that's the way we're supposed to live and even in the Old Testament here it is in full display with a beautiful story I mean it was tough for them but it's like wow it's the display of their faith in the midst of a threat you will bow down or I will kill you It's like saying you will turn away from God. You will turn away from the one true living God and you will bow down to this piece of material over here or I will kill you. It's like, no, that's, this isn't even close of a debate for me. No, I'm not going to.
0: Right. And it's a very interesting display of faith. But here's the thing. There's no promise anywhere in the Bible. They have no promise that if they go into the furnace that they'll be saved through faith they say god will save us yeah that's the level of faith and that speaks so much to faith that they would stand up and say he will save us you know what even if he doesn't we're still not scared right and then they get in there and he does show up he does deliver them in a miraculous way which is not at all promised in the bible and to me that speaks volumes to anybody who scours the Old Testament and the whole Bible and says, well, here's the promises of God. Mm -hmm. Well, if I just do this, this, and this, and the Bible says, well, here's the promises, you're going to get all this out of it. Right, now God's obligated. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so where was the promise here? There was no promise. They had absolutely no guarantee and no certainty that they were coming out of this alive, yet they were still willing to serve God to death and that faith delivered them. Christ said, your faith has healed you. Get up and walk faith comes into play so much yet in the modern day, it seems like we're always looking for the, the fast answer. Um, we're always looking for the, let's go through the Bible and find the formula. And there's books on the promises of God. And there's all these different, you know, like the, whatever challenge, like, you know, you do this and you challenge God to deliver on his promise. And nine times out of 10, it's out of context. Right. I hate those things. And so when I see something like this, it's like, they have no promise yet. They went into it blind was what we're going to do. We're just, we're not even scared. I mean, the word that comes to me,
1: obedience, right? Look at the obedience that they have. They're obedient, even unto death. And again, beautiful story of God's first, nothing else is even a close second. It's like, yeah, even if he doesn't save me, even if we do burn up in your barbecue here, whatever, we're not doing it. They already had the eternal perspective as a way that I'd like to kind of phrase it. This whole world's temporary. If we go right now, we're stepping into eternity. We know where we'll be. It's all good, whatever. Do right. your thing, and and then of course, I, I don't know, but hey, would you think that maybe they're wanting to go ahead and do the exit? You know, like right. you know what, it's hot here anyway. Yeah, you know, we're kind of tired of the food and your and your attitude. You know, you have this god complex thing, and we're not into it. And well, they're thinking like, hey, let's go ahead and let's go ahead and do the exit, right? Like, like yeah, I'm just thinking that too. And even if he does it, hope he doesn't. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then God shows up. It's like this is really cool, but. I really got to go back out there, <laughs> you know? Right. So I'm not saying this would happen. That's just me being stupid, but well, know.
0: here's the weirder part. You, you literally just sat there and watched a team of workers. It's not a God. If I just watched a team of employees build it. Right. That's like praying to a building. That's weird. Yeah. Like I just watched it get a- erect. So it's like a, it's like a truck. I got to go worship my truck. Right.
1: Exactly. But hold on, but some people do, it. but some people do. Cause they, that's like, that's my truck. Yeah. Okay. Anyway,
0: yeah, but it's like I can explain that thing, so that's not a god. And I don't know. I've heard all kinds of
1: fun stories and debates, kind of like what we're doing right here. And I've heard people say, well, well, obviously it wasn't that big of a fire. This is all myth. I think things were blown out of proportion. So uh, it was like, and they built this, you know, small campfire, and <laughs> it was like maybe two, three logs tops. And so Nebuchadnezzar said, stand inside the the ring, the fire ring, and so they did. And like, man. I'm kind of burning some leather on my sandals. Like, I mean, is this my punishment? Right. Um, No, it was so hot that the people who were building it were being consumed in the flames.
0: (laughs) You know, so we know it was a rather large fire. When I was a kid, they had a depiction of this on the wall in one of the Sunday school classes, and it literally looked like an enormous chiminea (laughs) with a ramp going up into the mouth of it with guys falling off the ramp like, oh. (laughs) <laughs> I'm dying from the heat. <laughs> it is, oh, man. It is, we have spent way too much time on this one. Okay, let's move on.
1: Thank you. Uh great story. Um Joel chapter three, verse sixteen, God judges the nations. So God declares that all of the nations that come against his people, it is now time for their reckoning, time for their, their judgment. And verse sixteen is in the middle of this, so I'm gonna read verse sixteen and you know, discuss here the Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. It's so concise. It's so well put that God is the defender of Israel of his people. And even today we see nations coming against his people, Israel and He's not turning a blind eye to it. Just because the full prophetic event, timeline, timetable hasn't unfolded yet, doesn't mean that God is not aware of what's going on. And this is a prophesying of that, of what's going to occur that hasn't happened yet. Now, I'm not saying that people or nations that have come against the Jewish nation haven't been judged, so we, you know, where's Hitler? What happened to his rule and reign? What happened to the Egyptian empire? What happened to the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Medo-Persians, the Grecians, the Romans, all these other people, the Byzantines, and people who come against Israel? Yeah, they've been dealt with, but in the end, whenever God judges the entire world who have come against his people, that's ultimately going to be the second coming of Christ. And here we see in Joel chapter three, some mentioning about God judging the nations. It's a pretty big deal. It involves the whole world. <laughs> so. All right. So the next one is Habakkuk chapter three, verse 16. And it's kind of ties into what we were discussing about Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and saying, well, God, you know, come what may, we're going to, we're going to follow you and be obedient even unto death. So, I included verses 16, 17 and 18. When I heard my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered my bones and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls verse 18 yet i will rejoice in the lord i will joy in the god of my salvation and so regardless of trying to you know put together you know what all is going on here we know that there's death and despair and tribulation and all these type of uh, outside threats and harm and so on and so forth, it's saying that no matter what comes in this world, we know there's going to be death, destruction, despair, hard times, hardships. That's just how it is right now And so Christ comes back. And as we go through life, regardless of what we endure, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. And that's the message that Christians need to live through their life. And I just wanna put in here that I hear all too often about pastors telling people that if you come to the Lord, your problems are over. That's not accurate at all. What we can say is, is that if you come to the Lord in salvation, despite the problems that still come, we have joy in our salvation. We have the eternal perspective. Our eternity is secure with him, and that's what we need to be focused on. Look, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And and so if we have that in focus, we're going to serve Christ no matter what. We're going to go through things, we're going to be persecuted, and so on and so forth. And then when we die, it's all gain. It's all good. We're in his presence forever and ever, and that's what it needs to be. And I think this is a message that we need to have in our hearts until Christ brings us home. Now, I want to keep moving here because within the very next book in the Bible, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 16, and again, I put in 17 and 18, the Lord will deliver in the time of trouble. So, verse 16, And that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear. Zion, let not your hands be weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. The Mighty One will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly who are among you to whom its reproach is a burden. And now this doesn't mean that you're not going to have trials. This is saying that he's going to be with you in the midst and that he's going to deliver you in that day whenever it's in his time and in his will. But I thought it was interesting that that was in the very next book of chapter 3 verse 16 because the previous book we see this lamenting and no matter what happens come what may i'm going to rejoice in you and then the very next book we see this hey i see your trouble i see your tribulation and i am faithful to deliver you i am with you always and then in his time he pulls you out he brings you into his midst for healing and for restoration i think it's a cool
0: back-to-back connection there And that's part of the Old Testament also is in the Old Testament you have, like we've already said, there's this back and forth with God and the people, like the people sin, God punishes them, puts them into a situation, and then they cry out to God and they say, Oh Lord, have you forgotten us? Have you, have you left us? Have you forsaken us? And so he brings them back out and then they get complacent. They get greedy and they start intermarrying again and serving other gods. And so he punishes them again, and it's this back and forth, back and forth that goes on throughout the Old Testament, which, like we said, is going to play itself out all the way to the end of the tribulation. It's not even done. So in 16, it says, in that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, representing Israel, but to the city, Zion, let not your hands be weak. The Lord, your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. So it's like he's coming in. He's coming for you. Like, don't lose heart. And so if you look at Jerusalem today, surrounded by her enemies, in a constant state of warfare, no peace in the land, and then you have this, and it's saying, Jerusalem, he's coming. Right. Don't lose sight. Right. He says there,
1: I think you overlooked it, but it says, do not fear. Right. Zion, let not your hands be weak because what would they fear? Well, like you said, they're observing the outward threat. Okay, I'm not talking anything about replacement theology. Jerusalem is Jerusalem, the Jews are the Jews. Right. I'm saying the principle remains the same that we look at outside threats. It could be we're worried about our finances, we're about some sort of illness in our family or within our own bodies. We're worried about whatever relations. We worried about war, we're worried about the the politics or what's gonna happen in the elections and what's in the news and all those things, you know, natural disasters. He's saying don't fear. Look, these things are coming. You're going to have hardships, but I am with you. But a lot of these things that happen are for the purposes to draw us closer to him because he he wants and desires our obedience, our worship to him our devotion to him and that he's always going to be first no matter what, no matter if it's a good thing in our life or if it's a bad thing in our
0: life. Right. I find it beautiful how the Old Testament is full of this. Although you're in the midst, you're just in the absolute midst of punishment. Don't fear because although you're in punishment, he still loves you. If you read the book of Hosea in chapter two, God says, here's this list of things that you've done against me. So for all of this, I'm going to take away everything I've given you. And then when you lay bare and embarrassed, then I will slowly give back to you one by one. I will bring you back to myself and you will love me again. From that Matthew three 16. we're in the new Testament now in verse 16. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove And alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So we discussed this on the last episode, I think, where we were talking about how there's that moment where the entire Trinity is represented, where it's Christ being baptized, the Holy Spirit comes down in a dove, and then God the Father speaks from above. It's that one scene of the entire Trinity in one place at one time, in one moment, showing they do stand apart. Like they are three individuals, although still one.
1: Right. One God and three different persons at the same time. One God. Right. I don't fully understand it, but that's what it is. And this is also, of course, the moment that Jesus is commissioned, ordained, anointed to now do his service, his ministry as the great Messiah, the rabbi, the anointed one to be the way to show us what the new Testament's all about. The new covenant
0: all the way to the cross to buy our souls, you know, a ransom. Right. Which is interesting because this is like you said, it's the start of his time. Previous to this, he'd been at a wedding Mm -hmm. and his mom came to him and said, Oh, Hey, they're out of wine. And he was, and he tells his mom, he says, why do you, why do you come to me with this? Don't you know, it's not my time yet. Right. In other words, I can't work miracles for you, mom. Yeah. And then he does it anyway. I've always written it off as he was, Honoring his mother. Yeah, could have been. His mother requested it because even though he said it's not my time, she turned around to somebody else and said, whatever he says, dude, just do it.
1: Well, I think there's some wisdom in that. Whatever Jesus says, you do it. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's wise, okay? That's wise. Yeah, everything else is conjecture. Why he did it, I don't know, but it's conjecture. Yeah. We know that Jesus is perfect, so we know it wasn't a mistake. I don't know fully like why that happened at that point, but it did. Yeah. Um. This is a big one, Mark chapter 3, verse 16, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Right. I just thought it was interesting because this is the first disciple that's named. It's the closest to Jesus. And it was on Mark chapter 3, verse 16. And, yeah, the disciples are important. The commissioning, that can establish like, you know, government of the church and delegation and discipleship and so on and so forth. And there's all kinds of you know truths with that. Right. The bottom line is is that we're talking about Peter here. Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter, and we always call him Peter. We don't call him Simon because Jesus changed his name to Peter. And this is where we see it, and this is when he's calling him.
0: Well, some people say Simon Peter, but um, not me. It's <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. One of the interesting things I like is there's two people that get a name change, Peter and Paul. And they're the two like primary authors in the New Testament. They're the two that everybody goes back and forth about. Christ renames two people, Peter and Paul, who both are argued over who's the better, but both great champions of the faith. And both of them go from a name starting with an S to a name starting with a P. I didn't even
1: think about that. It's weird. It has nothing to
0: do with anything, but it's always fascinated me.
1: The first letter?
0: Yeah, it goes from step. Well, yeah, but we talk in... uh... Uh, Anyway, I was going to get it like, is this Aramaic? What are we dealing with Greek? Well, I'm just saying you go from Simon to Peter and Saul to Paul. Now, in the original Greek or whatever it was, it might have been wildly different letters. But in the English translation, it fascinates me.
1: I never really thought about that S to P. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, moving along. Luke chapter 3, verse 16. Since mine was short, I'm going to take this one because that way I can speak on a longer one. This is going back to the baptism and the Jordan River for Jesus, but there's some little bit more commentary here. Verse 16, Luke. John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptize you with water, but one, speaking of Jesus, mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So much more power, so much more truth, so much more just deep proclamation of the spiritual realm, judgment, eternity. And I would have to imagine that this was very heavy and... At the time, I'm talking about at the time, remember Jesus hasn't started his ministry yet, so at this time, this has to be just mind-boggling, something that maybe people have never even heard of before, of this, this judgment, someone that's coming with fire and separation and just absolute authority, and he's declaring this, and from our standpoint, we have the entire Bible like, well yeah, he's talking about Jesus, but in this day, whenever this is happening, this is a big deal, this is a big declaration, of
0: the judgment of souls. Well, and not just that, but also this is John the Baptist talking to his followers saying, Hey, I, I baptize you with water, but somebody else is coming. Who's going to baptize you with fire and the Holy spirit. And then you fast forward to the book of acts and you see what happened on the day of Pentecost and the Holy spirit comes on them and over them is what looked like tongues of fire. So you have the Holy spirit and fire and that same imagery. In the moment with which they receive the Holy Spirit, and they are, you know, more or less, if you would, they're baptized, they're christened into ministry at that moment.
1: Um, I looked in the Gospel of John; I couldn't find anything. Uh, There's nothing major in John chapter three, verse sixteen.
0: Oh, uh, well, Let's blow past it then. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you want me to read it? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I <laughs> thought we were just gonna. Read well, no, this blow.
1: is how it all started. <laughs>
0: So, John 3.16.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why we're we, we laughing.
0: Because, anyway, go ahead. Because this is literally where 3.16 came from. Yeah. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved.
1: I just want to jump right in here and say, I do believe that every Christian should memorize this scripture, not because it makes you born again or makes you any more important in the kingdom. I do think there is, this is the fundamental act of, you know, the motive and how God chose to save his people. And I do think this is a scripture that we can stand on about God's intention towards us and, and also whenever we share with other people about salvation and you know what Christ did for us and things of that nature, and it is a very recognizable verse. When you say John three sixteen, you can speak to it. You can quickly go to a point of salvation with them and saying, hey, are you born again? What did you do with Jesus Christ who
0: came and died for you? Right, and on the last mini-cast, we were talking about the separation between the sacred and the secular, but we were talking about how we are in the world though we're not of the world. And if you take it straight to the scripture, literally it says, for God so loved the world. That doesn't mean he so loved the planet that he sent his son to die. It doesn't mean that he so loved the Christians that he sent his son to die. It means he so loved everyone on the planet. He so loved everyone in the world that he sent his son to die, to reclaim them, to buy back those that would take it, to bring back to himself, to make a way to have what he loves, cleanse what he loves and to forgive and pay the debt for that, which he loves. And it doesn't stop at Christians and it doesn't stop at church members. It literally applies to everybody. And so in this way that we're talking in the last episode of, Hey, we're in the world and there's this separation, but although we're not of the world, we're still in it and we're in it to have an effect. I think the best example is Christ going to tax collectors houses. He doesn't sit around with them like, Hey man, tell me how you did it. He doesn't sit there inflicting guilt on them yet. Just the fact that he's dining with them, just being himself kind of ha ha. He's probably making jokes. Tax collector jumps up. is like, look, this is what I'm going to do. All the money I took, I'm going to give it back times two. All right. If I've cheated anybody, I'm going to pay it back to him. I'm going to write everything. I'm going to write all the wrongs. And he's like, that's cool, but we're just having dinner, man. Like, I'm glad that you're going to do that. Go and send. He never demands it of them. Just being there. He never preaches to anybody. He's just there and among them and just the atmosphere and just how he is. It comes off of them. But that's the person that Christ is. And that's the person we're called to be around us. That person that when you're in a room, it's like people might be uncomfortable. But at the same time, it's like, well, you know, he's just a guy, you know, he's just one of us. You know, there's no fights. There's no arguments. He's not jumping up and down condemning people. We were talking about how you have pastors that make a pulpit out of screaming about the world's sins. And it's like, yeah, but you're omitting grace is what we were talking about. and It is that grace of God that is the invitation. And what I like about
1: John 3.16 in this verse, you've got the two options laid before you. So the whole world has the opportunity of salvation because whoever believes in him, Jesus Christ should not perish, but have everlasting life. So the two options are laid forth. People are either going to bust hell wide open, or they're going to be welcomed into the presence of God eternally. Right. And that's their choice. Now God wants everybody with him. And no, he doesn't want anybody to die and go to hell. He doesn't want there to be condemnation. He doesn't want to come and damn people. He wants to come and save people. Now he can only save those who believe because that's what it says, whoever believes. And that is the message, that is the gospel message. I do think there needs to be times where we point out people's sin. And there's other times we need to remind people that God loves them. And there's other times that we need to talk theology. And there's other times that we need to just hey, let's pray right now. There's other times you just need to sit and listen. And then maybe it's not at this moment. And that's between you and the Lord and in that moment and how He's leading and guiding and directing. But the bottom line is is that without verses like these in the Bible, we would be really stretching and reaching and wondering and you know, we won't have any firm footing on, well, are are we saved? You know, do do we have truth? I mean, do we know that we're saved? Because there's right. some cults that won't guarantee salvation. There's some cults that will say, uh, well, you know, it just depends, you know, whatever Allah's will be, and we don't know yet. And here we have in the word that there is everlasting life for those who believe, period, point blank. We can quote it, memorize it, remember it, talk about it, present it. And that's why this is such a a large key verse. It is very packed with information and wisdom and truth in such a short, few lines about our entire salvation and the choices that exist and god's desire about people going to heaven and not going to hell because people say that well i can't believe in god because you know babies die that's not the type of god that i know therefore the bible is not true it's like well hold on a second you know just take this one verse god loves the whole world he doesn't want any to perish right let's just start there he doesn't want any to perish okay Well, then what do you do about it? Glad you asked. Same verse. Well, he sent his son. So that way he would take our judgment. Now we have an option. We don't have to perish, but instead we can have everlasting life. I mean, it's all right there. Some of the stuff is obvious, but if we take the time to break down the theology and the truth in it, we begin to establish what Christianity is. He came to us. We couldn't go to him. He came to us.
0: Well, then Ecclesiastes, it says there is a time for war. There's a time for peace. There is a time to die. But everything has a season. Everything has a time. There is a time for hardships, things that you don't understand. There's a time for your faith to be challenged and there's a time for your faith to be built and you won't understand everything. There's a uh, astrophysicist who wrote a book and his opening line was the universe is under no obligation to make sense to you. That was his opening line. In the same way, God is under no obligation to make sense to you. The plan doesn't have to be 100% visible for your approval before God is going to execute it. God's going to do what God's going to do, and if you don't understand it, you will one day. Absolutely, absolutely. Romans
1: chapter 3, verse 16, and I added in there 17 and 18. More salvation. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So part of the Romans road, we call it, we take somebody through the progression of, okay, everybody's a sinner. The penalty of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And those who believe and confess that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God can be saved. So you you have this progression through the book of Romans and this is part of it, of salvation. But in here, we're talking about all of sin and the penalty or price of sin is death. And as far as verse 18, it says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So I would refer you to episode two where we talk about (laughs) the fear of God. Because there's
0: so much there. Well, you know what? You just want to do a throwback from tonight. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And we talk about with Solomon, with wisdom and Proverbs, it being the book of wisdom. So you can all but guarantee that Solomon feared God. Absolutely, he did. And in fact, in several places throughout the Bible, the book of Job being the one that comes to mind, it says Job was a righteous man who feared God. Right. In fact, when talking about Job, it says that his children Would party and would drink much wine and you know, whatever the next morning. Job would build an altar and sacrifice for his children, fearing that maybe while they were drinking wine and their drunkenness, they might have accidentally blasphemed God. And so, I don't know what the kids did last night while they were having fun over there, so sacrifice to God, hey, God, look, I'm just making atonement. You know, kids are going to be kids over there, right? You know, they're 21. They're a little crazy. They'll grow out of it one day, you know, but that's the kind of fear he had for God. I don't even know what my children did last night, but just in case, I mean, you, as long as I've known you, you've always talked about praying grandmas, just grandmas that are just 24 seven praying and like these grandkids, they just don't know, (laughs) you know, they they just don't fear God. Yeah. Um, (laughs) But that's the fear that Job had of God. His children were just, just had a night, just hanging out with themselves. Hey, let's, you know, let's grill a lamb, you know, get a bottle of wine out, just laughing, joking around at the house. And then the next morning, Job's over there building altars, sacrificing bulls, saying, God, I don't know what they did, but just in case, forgive them if they offended you.
1: Well, I mean, going into the fear of God, I mean, truly, if you really fear God, then you're going to care about what the Bible says. Right. Yeah, I care. I read the Bible like, well, I care about that. I better attend to this business. I better straighten this up or get with the Lord on that and but if you don't fear God, you're just like, eh, I'm indifferent about it. Like it's a good read, you know. That's entertaining words to uh, consider. But there's no real ownership of uh, I need to get obedient here because you're not fearing God. I mean that's the bottom line. If you fear the Lord then you're going to be doing what God says because you obey you obey him because I don't wanna test him, provoke him, make him angry. And again, there's so much to speak to when it comes to the fear of God and the Bible commands us to do it. Again, let me speak to the false doctrine side of things. People say that we should never be afraid of the Lord. Sorry, it's not in my Bible. right? I'm assuming we're working out of the same Bible here, King James, New King James, whatever. It's not in there. We're called to have reverence and fear and, and admonition. And we serve the Lord. He is our God. He's not our buddy. He's not our friend. He's not up here. He's not anywhere near up here. He is our creator. We are his creature, creation, and we are subject to him. And we need to serve him the way that he described without compromise. We don't say, oh, well, you know what? I think he meant this, or, you know what? It's an exception for me. He knows who I am. He and I have an arrangement. All these things that we say to ourselves, it's no, that's what he said. That's what we need to do. If you're not in line with it, you can't blame yourself, your parents, the culture, the school you went to, your lack of education, your illness. No, you do what God says. And if you're not in line, then you repent.
0: Right. One of the pastors that I follow when he was talking about this, he was kind of talking about the idea of like judging, grading yourself. And he's like, if you have no fear of God, odds are you have a T-shirt that says Jesus is my homeboy. Yeah. Because that's the attitude that you adopt. You take on this persona of like, Oh, Jesus and I are cool. And you know, whenever I, you yeah, mess up, he understands he's right. Jesus. You're like half out. Yeah. you the a man. It's not seen as a, a hierarchy of, I answer to him because in the modern day, it's in modern America. We're all about this world of who's on top. The president eh, we will vote him out in two years. So to that, We don't have a monarchy. We don't have a king that's just forever on the throne. And if you cross him, he he can just scream off with your head. And you know what I'm saying? We don't live in that system anymore. Right.
1: It's foreign to us. Well, absolute power, right? We think we have a say in things.
0: Well, and because of the president and Congress in this country, they do everything they can to pander to us. They want to keep us happy. They want to keep the votes coming in. And so we're used to an overhead that's saying, hey, what do you want? I'm going to get it for you. Like everything you want. You want to go and live and you go do what you want to That's the hierarchy that we're used to. It doesn't apply at all.
1: Well, Christians need to get on their knees, really consider what the fear of the Lord is, and seek Him, seek His Word. And I'm telling you, man, you start fearing God, good things are going to start happening in your life. Right. Thus saith God, not me. And this is very key. Again, another linchpin of truth of our doctrine about salvation. And so another chapter three, verse
0: 16. So then first Corinthians three sixteen. do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So and that goes right back to what we were talking about earlier, where we were talking about how the Bible says your body is the temple of God. And that we were called to be stewards of our body, obviously, and to take care of the temple. The Holy Spirit now dwells inside of us, now communes with us directly. Previous to the death of Christ, you had the situation with the veil in the temple. And then at the death of Christ on the cross, the veil is torn from top to bottom. It's ripped open um, as symbolic or just simply showing, hey, this way is now open. and We've talked about that.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: But now the Holy Spirit lives with us like we were just talking about at the day of Pentecost. You have the situation with disciples and the Holy Spirit comes upon them in the appearance of tongues of fire and they speak in many tongues so that everybody in Jerusalem who have come from all the different areas around, which is really kind of countless languages, everybody hears the gospel of Christ in their own language. And yet to the disciples, they're not speaking that many languages. It's just the miraculous working moment because the Holy spirit came upon them. And equally the Holy spirit comes upon us. It stays with us. It goes with us It's a comforter. It brings understanding. It brings clarity. It plays all of those roles at the same time. Again, just kind of tying in on a lot of things
1: that you just mentioned. Absolutely. This shifts into the new Testament setup arrangement that God has with people on the earth that are Christians because there's no longer a requirement for us to have an earthly mediator to go through a priest or to go through a prophet in order to hear from God. Right. But instead, now we have direct, like you said, communion, fellowship with the Lord via his Holy Spirit, him, God himself, indwelling our souls, our being within us. And so now we get his anointing, his conviction, his leading, his protection, his gifts, the, fruits of the spirit, all these things are available to us directly by him. And this is huge in the way of a shift in the new covenant, how he has sealed us to himself, the deposit of the eternal salvation of his Holy Spirit within us. And whenever we begin to understand what's going on here and how God relates with his people, you begin to start thinking about things in a vastly different way, that you are an eternal creature, that God has a plan and a purpose for you, that he's with you, he will never leave you, never forsake you, even under the end of the age, as Christ said in Matthew 28, just before he ascended. And this is how it's happening. This is how it's done right here. God's Holy Spirit lives within you. That's how he'll never leave you, he'll never forsake you. Nobody can come along and then separate you from God. Nobody can pull Jesus out of your heart you know what I'm saying? We right. say Jesus in my heart. Nobody can do that. Why? Because of this right here. And so now we become the temple of God. It's just awesome. God can be with us always, no matter what. This is amazing. What a gift. What a promise. What a hope that we have and how we get to experience life on the earth as Christian believers. This is what we have that the world does not have. The unwashed masses, the lost souls, they don't have this. We have the one true living God within us always that quickens our bodies, quickens our souls. We are alive. We have vision. We are of the light. You know, all these things, they are of the darkness, they are of the world, they are blind, they are wretched, they are dead. We are alive, we see, we're in his presence. Like this whole dichotomy, this this polar opposite, and this is how it happens because God's within us. All right, this next one, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 16, kind of ties into what we were just speaking of. And it says, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Verse 18, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So there's a lot said there, but just at the basics, what we just said, we become born again, the Holy Spirit of God lives within us. Now we have His Spirit leading, guiding, convicting, helping us, giving us fruit of the Spirit, gifts to serve Him, and so on. This veil of blindness is removed. We now have spiritual sight. We now understand and discern things that we couldn't before. And then where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. The bondage of sin and death and wickedness and condemnation and punishment is taken away. We now have freedom in Christ to live with him. And then our faces are unveiled. This is a real cool part, we'll probably mention this in worship, but now our faces are like a mirror. And we behold, as in a mirror, the glory of God. What does a mirror do? it reflects whatever is you know, shown upon it. So if God is bringing his glory to us and we are as a mirror, what do you think he's seeing back to himself? His own glory. That's not our glory. We're not divine, we're not God's, we're not righteous in of ourselves, but instead God, he is our source of all salvation and holiness and righteousness. He completes our life, the author and finisher of our faith. And so whenever he comes into our life, it reflects back to himself, and he gets glory for what he has done in us. It's really cool, it's really deep, it gets into worship, these other things, and none of it is possible unless you're born again and the spirit of God's within you. So don't wanna chase that too far, but it's all part of the Christian walk, this is a big one right here, Second Corinthians 3, 16
0: through 18. So then Galatians 3, 16, now to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made, he does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to your seed who is Christ. So what he's saying is that Israel being the, the descendant or the seed from Abraham, the lineage of Abraham is the recipient of God's promises. So he didn't promise it to multiple seeds, which would be Ishmael, who is Abraham's other son, which from Ishmael, you trace the roots of the Muslim nations or the Muslim religion. So it really is this world of Abraham has two sons, one by Sarah, his wife, and the other by Sarah's handmaiden, um, which he wasn't. God didn't ordain that. His wife pushed that off on him. And so from his sinful relationship comes the world of the Muslim religion. And then from his godly relationship comes Israel, comes his people, comes those who are in covenant with God, comes those who God made his promises to. But then you also have a situation where back in Genesis, Abraham says to God, oh, but what of Ishmael? And he's like, look, I'm going to prosper him. He's going to be a mighty people, but he's not going to be my people. My people are going to be over here with your wife, with your son this is what I've ordained. I'll take care of him too, but the two of them are always gonna they're always gonna fight. They're always gonna butt heads.
1: Well, and where I want to tie in again, whenever I look at these things, I'm thinking about false doctrines and false theologies that creep into the modern day church. Right. And this establishes and we have other areas in the Bible, but again, we're dealing with a chapter three of verse sixteen. It's very direct to say that the Jewish people they still have a role in God's plan on this earth. Right. And they're not going away. And God didn't change his mind about his people because we get into this thing. We've talked about many times before replacement theology. That is a false doctrine. God did not do away with the Jews and then replace the Jews with the church. And then he went forward like, oops, you know what? That plan fell apart. Oh, look, it's a substitute. Yeah, well, this will be a good enough fix and let's right. move on with that's crazy. And you see that with Martin Luther, although there were some good reformation things there but no he was also an anti-semitic person we see that with hitler so i'm just naming people that you're aware of there's other people in maybe lesser known corners of the earth and in history but those two those are big names right there martin luther and hitler and guess what hitler used martin luther's writings for his you know solution to his struggle right. and to go straight to genocide against the jews all right and that's not true and here it is in the bible in the new testament The New Testament, we're not referencing Old Testament. This is New Testament. So God's promise to the descendants of Abraham still remains. Replacement theology is a lie of Satan. All right, so touching on another doctrine, Ephesians chapter three, verse 16. And I do believe this is in regards to strength for the Christian believer. It says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with the might through his spirit in the inner man. What kind of jumped out at me here, according to the riches of his glory and a lot of the health, wealth, prosperity people, they's like, Oh, you said riches. I'm interested, you know? And then they start thinking along the lines of worldly riches from their own culture, their own standard or whatever you want to say, their outlook on what is valuable to them. And that's not what God's talking about. We'll read it in context. He would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with the might through his spirit in the inner man. This isn't really even talking about anything physical. This is talking about his Holy Spirit. There's no end to the reservoir. There's no you know, limit. Oh, you tapped him out. The Holy Spirit has to go lie down and rest. He's kind of done for the right. day. That doesn't exist. It's unlimited resource, the riches of his glory And then this is for strengthening the inner man through his Holy Spirit. So we were talking about before we are the temple, the veil was torn, God lives within us. And this is the promise that he's going to be with us in order to get us through the hard times that kind of violates the health, wealth, prosperity, right? We're going to go through things. Guess what we're going to need? We're going to need some strength. We're going to go through some trials, some testing, some persecution, some troubles, some sickness. We're going to have problems. Those aren't going away. He's promising that he's going to be with us. He's promising that he will deliver us and that when it's all said and done and we pass in this physical, we're with him forever. That's where the true completion of the salvation and the deliverance, the redemption occurs.
0: Right. And just going with that for a second, you and I were talking earlier while we were in Exodus about just the power of the statement of God saying, I am that I am. Go and tell Pharaoh that I am sent you. And yet you take it to this modern health, wealth, prosperity world. And Joel Osteen wrote a book called The Power of I Am. I found the book. I picked it up. I read it. And it was nothing but just empty words about the power of I am. But not I am referring to God, but I am saying you say to yourself, I am a conqueror and I'll conquer. Yes, I am healthy and I'll be healthy. I am this and I and that is not what that's all about at all. It has nothing to do with the phrase I am is God naming himself. If I had to choose my name, what is my name? I am. That's what I am. And you tell them that. And then Joel Osteen picks that up and says, how do I make a buck off this? Well, you know what? You should be telling yourself I am, too. It is blasphemous.
1: Absolutely. Well, you're taking on the position of the creator. Well, you're borrowing his name. Yeah, you're borrowing his name and then you're saying, "Well, I have the capability to create and then fill in the blank. Success, right. wealth, popularity, you know, victory in this thing or whatever, and like I speak health into you." You're basically you're saying you're God? Right. We seek God in these things. Dear heavenly Father, in Jesus name, I come before you. God, I got these things on my mind. Here's what's going on. Can you please help me out? Give me the strength, God. That's a prayer to him to help us in our struggles. Not, oh, I should get a bonus. Well, I am going to get a bonus, you know? Because that's what he's talking about. It's complete blasphemy. But, you know, in this, the riches of his glory is to strengthen the inner man. And this is for women, but you know what I'm saying, the inner being. And, well, I mean, some people get weird with that stuff. But anyway, what this is speaking of, The context of the Bible, the context of the Christian walk is for God to be with us and direct us, guide us to be about his business in the midst of a crazy and wicked world. And yes, we are going to be struggling at times, but that doesn't mean that our God is weak or that he ignored us or we didn't have enough faith. No, he allows us to go through the struggle for his glory. And we may not understand it all. No, let me rephrase that. We will not understand it all, but we're going to go through it and he's with us, we know that, we stand on that. Our salvation is not in question. Our salvation is secure, it's firm, it's not on shaky ground. And then, like it says, he will strengthen us to go through these things. I mean, that's what Philippians talks about. He's gonna strengthen us, we're gonna endure these things for his glory, for the high call, for the ministry. And that's the context of it, but they take it and they say, I'm more than a conqueror. Well, hold on a second, you're taking that out of context. That's totally out of context. So keeping the promises of God and Christianity
0: in context, it's really we're built for a tough time on the earth. Well, and I know that we've already talked about fear of God tonight, but you have to look at it that you you have no fear of God at that moment. When the Jews were transcribing the Bible, they would not write the name of Yahweh. They wouldn't write it. They would leave letters out and they had other Things they wrote that just kind of when they're reading it like oh that's the name of god i don't speak that and they don't write that like that's how reverent it was you don't write the name of god you don't speak the name these days you have pastors walk around going jehovah Yahweh, i just throwing them out there people put it on posters mm-hmm. the jews were so reverent and so fearful it's like we've seen him in our history Present himself as a pillar of fire and guide us through a desert. Do you want to go dance with the pillar of fire? Like, no. Nobody wants to go dance with the pillar of fire. We saw God destroy the most powerful empire in
1: a moment. Right. We saw God open up the earth and swallow those that were being
0: disobedient. It's like we had to kill lambs and paint their blood over our doorstep When an angel of death came through and slayed specifically the first born child of every house.
1: Not because the death angel
0: couldn't get everybody. It's just that that was the instruction. That was the precision. Right. And it comes with a level of fear. Yeah. And then from that, it comes with a level of respect and a level of wisdom. And then you just take the name of God and say, I am a conqueror. And how do we get some money out of this, you know, Holy Spirit type thing? (laughs) That's awful, but it's happening. It's what's happening every yeah. day.
1: You know, I, I think about that, and here is truth. The Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever.
0: Oh, there's the same judgment and anger. And we're, we're
1: still dealing with the same God, or better yet, God is still dealing with us, the same one. Then you move into things outside of the church, outside of Christianity, and then you have people just using Jesus Christ's name in blasphemy as a cuss word right? or GD as a cuss word. It's like, man, probably shouldn't do that. God doesn't take that stuff lightly. It's pretty heavy. I, I like this progression here. We're going through the Bible. And, and again, it's bringing up a lot of different things. I know we're kind of reaching to different corners of theology and thoughts and, and Bible history, but it's pretty cool
0: a little journey here. So then Philippians 3.16 says, Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. So that's a little hollow. So just giving context to it, if you step back into verse 12, he says, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has already laid hold of me. So Paul is encouraging people to keep the mantle, to keep driving toward perfection. He says, it's not that I've attained it. It is not that I am perfected, but that I'm working toward it. And likewise, you need to be working toward it. He says, again, 16, nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind.
1: Yeah, and I mean, this is really focusing on our call to the Lord In the ministry for your life, because we're gonna have life happen and things are gonna get in the way. It's going to buffet you and discourage you, distract you and pull you away from the things that you know that God's called you to. And Paul is giving us this encouragement to we just keep moving forward. No, we're not perfect. Yes, we have issues. There are things that are external and internal, both that buffet us, but we're going to continue to walk by the same rule of the same mind and we're going to achieve what God has called us to as the church body. And Paul really took the humble route throughout his entire ministry. And he never said, hey, I'm the leader. You know, he wasn't like Moses up on the mountain saying, listen to what I have to say, follow me. He was more of like on the front lines, in the trenches, going through it probably the worst of anyone around him while encouraging saying, come on, let's keep going. Let's keep moving forward. I'm on the front lines with you. Keep up the race, lay hold of the call, press in, let's finish strong. You know, it's like, don't give up. And that's kind of this, this same encouragement and command and instruction, however you want to word that about us to fulfill the call of ministry in our life. And I guess I'll just add one other thing that if we, forsake everything that's outside of god's will that will help us to be right on point with what where he's calling us to be and that's kind of tied to what i just said about other things external internal that may hinder the progress that we should be having so if we forsake that then we're going to be set up for a better success to have you know again a more successful ministry in the eyes of god i love this one Colossians chapter three, verse 16 and 17. This is one of the coolest verses in all the New Testament. This is a challenge, and I think we've talked about this before, but let's do it. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to god the father through him so colossians 3 16 and 17 this is everything to a christian believer you get these you know i go back to the youth minister days and you get these students who come up to you and they ask these probing questions and really what really what's going on here is the the teenager wants to know where the boundaries are hey where's that line at pastor yeah Look, I don't want to read the Bible and study. I know that you've probably looked at it a couple times more than me. So can you just give me the cliff notes and tell me like, what about, um, you know, and then fill in the blank. Usually we like to go to the sexual thing because they got a girlfriend or boyfriend, but it's other things too. And you know, what does the Bible say about tattoos? What does the Bible say about smoking? What does the Bible say about cussing? What does the Bible say about going to church? Or if I don't want to go to church on Sunday morning, but I go Wednesday, What, you know, like all these things what happens if I have homework? You know, it's like this stuff comes all the time. Yeah. And so I quickly think about this verse and this specifically verse 17. It says "And whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God, the father through him. So does it glorify God? Yeah. Okay. Now we're not blind to that. We don't know like, well, I don't know what glorifies God. We're not blind to it. We have the Bible. We're not, you know, he didn't, he didn't throw us to our own opinions, but the bottom line is, is that we do all to glorify God. And so now that puts on that great load and expectation of the Christian believer. Whenever you begin your walk, you become born again, your walk begins, and then you do everything to glorify God at that point. And that's a toughie, but that is what we're called to do. This is a great verse to live by and probably one of the toughest to live by.
0: Well, then you also have that kid who takes that and says, "Now, how do I smoke cigarettes and glorify God while doing it?" I don't even—I can't even come up with a funny one for that. It's just—but that's what they're going to do. Yeah, they're going
1: to what? um, The word escapes me. They're going to uh, try to justify their own behavior that they do not want to modify because they enjoy it even though they know it's probably misaligned to scripture, but if they could somehow walk in some sort of, um, right. Oh, well, Jesus, you
0: didn't take this into consideration. And you like know, Jesus said, they're going, wait, what's an iPhone. Oh, well, if they have that, that just rewrites the rule book. Yeah. Yeah. Never mind. There's a, there's a bitten apple <laughs> on the back of it. But What if it's an Android that
1: goes into image of the beast? But anyway, <laughs> the next one's yours. First Thessalonians chapter three, verse
0: 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. So that's kind of like a closing the letter statement. Yeah, and I mentioned it earlier. I think
1: of Matthew 28 when Jesus says, and lo, I'm with you always even to the end of the age. This is exactly ties into what Christ said. There's not a lot to it, but it's very self-explanatory, but it is a promise, and we yeah. really want peace in our hearts in a troubled time and we don't want to have no hope like the wicked where yeah. there is no peace in their hearts they'll never have peace until someone comes to the lord in repentance you don't know where you're going to go whenever you die all right the next one first timothy chapter three verse 16 so this is jesus's mission during his first coming it's basically summed up in one verse And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. This one verse encaptures the entire first coming of Jesus, all of it.
0: (laughs) Well, it covers the entire gospel, basically. Yeah. manifest in the flesh.
1: It's whenever he was conceived in Mary. And then, of course, born as a baby, grew up as a human, justified in the spirit. He never sinned. And then he was also the Holy Spirit came upon Mary. So there was the spirit was justified in that manner as well. Seen by angels. Angels announced his arrival. Angels was ministering to him and preached among the Gentiles. That's to the whole world the gospel will go to the whole world and then the end will come. Right. Believed on in the world. Absolutely. That is the great commission, the fulfillment of the great commission and then received up in glory. Well, that's where he sits right now at the right hand of the father. I think this is a really cool one. It's all summed up. One go, you want to know what's going on in one verse what happened with Jesus? There you have it.
0: Right, it's a real like what is it you like to say one take Jake? Yeah, one take Jake. Yeah. <laughs> so then 2 Timothy 3:16 which is Phil's favorite. One of my favorite. Yeah, I kind of snaked this one from you. Yeah, I was I was hoping
1: that whenever we got into this rotation, this one's gonna follow on me. So but yeah. whatever,
0: go ahead. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what it's saying is the Bible is the tool you need. It's what you correct yourself by. It's what you set yourself by. It's how you lead, how you guide and how you decipher and all those things. He's saying the word of God is going to do all these jobs for you. Whenever you have a question, you go to the word of God. When you're trying to justify something, you compare it to the Word of God. If you're trying to guide a brother, you guide him with the Word of God. You don't sit there and say, well, you don't want to think about that. Nobody cares what you think about that. Everything comes back to the Word of God. Everything comes back to the Bible, and it is what we set ourselves to. Well,
1: this is what the Bible says about itself. Right. So if you're wondering, what does the Bible have to say about the Bible. This is the verse. This is also instruction from God in debate about the Bible to those who believe that there is no God and that the Bible is just a mythical book. We start here in our research and it declares, yes, Christian, you are on solid ground to tell the world that the Bible is the word of God because that's what it says. It sounds a little circular in logic, but it's not. If God says it, it's true. And when you research it, you're not going to find anything else but that truth. Now, some people within the church think that some scripture is from God, and other scripture, eh, and we just kinda take it or leave it. Pick and choose, right. take some of it, well, none of this applies, or I don't talk about the book of Revelation, or because quickly we can get into this Old Testament, New Testament debate. All of it is God's word, number one. What's applicable to us? Well, we can get into this debate again because things did change whenever Christ came. We have a new testament, a new covenant. Absolutely, there's no. that's what was gonna happen. It was prophesied. However, we do not throw away the Old Testament because there's still things in the Old Testament that are true. Well, first of all, all no. of it's true, but things that are still in effect things like, well, what is sin? Those things are described for us. Like we're not supposed to kill, we're not supposed to steal, we're not supposed to lie, we're not supposed to commit adultery, like the Ten Commandments type stuff. Where did we come from? Well, the creation, that process, that's still in effect. We, we stand on those truths about where we came from. The history of God's people, it matters. Why? Because that led right into the, the lineage of Jesus Christ. We are grafted and adopted as spiritual sons into the seed and covenant of Abraham. I mean, I can go on and on and on. There's also prophecies of the second coming of Christ that have not occurred yet. We can't look past that. There's prophecies of the first coming that validate who Jesus is because he fulfilled the prophecies of of the first coming. And we can go on and on and on, but the bottom line is, is what this says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, period. And then it gets into what it's useful for, profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction and righteousness that every man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped in every good work. You wanna do good work for the Lord, you're gonna have to have the Bible. You get the Bible, you read it, you study it, you learn it, you then apply it in full. So, We'll break off of that, but the Bible is useful for all these things and how often do we reprove or correct people? You know, I don't know. Think about the doctrine. You know, how, how often are you doing this? How often are we correcting people or are we bringing reproof for the doctrine? We talk about that a lot on this podcast about the doctrine. There's different things out there that are false doctrine. We use the Bible to demonstrate where their error is and where truth is in the word and so that's why we need to be studying the word of God so that we were able to do that have that discernment have that discussion and then point things out in detail that's a good one and as I said before 2nd Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 it was actually the second chapter 3 verse 16 you know passage in the Bible I was like hmm I can remember that it was this one right here in conjunction with John 3.16. And then after those two, I started recognizing, I think the next one that I remember was Genesis 3.16. I was like, hey, that's kind of a big deal, 3.16. And then it just kept appearing as we've been reading. These things have been on my mind as I've read through the Bible. I was like, hey, that's 3.16 right there. That was a doozy. You know, that was a heavy hitting one. It wasn't just like beget such and such, beget. No, it's like, whoa. So anyway, that's some of the stuff that y'all wanted to share here. But moving forward. James chapter three. Now I kind of expanded a little bit more the verses here. It's 14 through 18, which obviously includes 16. But when I get to 16, I'll read it. So I'm trying to keep it in context. So that's why I didn't just want to one off the scripture. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in meekness of wisdom. Verse 14. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts... Do not boast and lie against the truth. Verse 15, this wisdom does not descend from above, but it is earthly, sensual, demonic. Now here it is, verse 16. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And finally, verse 18. Now the fruit of the righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So you have two different types of wisdom. You have the earthly wisdom and you have the heavenly wisdom from God. And then we have a choice here. I think this lays this out very eloquently. I don't want to belabor this whole passage, but I think it stands for itself. The verse 16 punchline is for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. So if you're coveting the things around you in the world and you're like trying to be self-seeking in everything that you do and that's what right. motivates you, well, that's what we've been talking about with these false doctrines, these false churches. It's all about what God can bless me with, what I can get, what I can get. And man, that fits right into worldly wisdom right here. This is, this is declaring that that is false. That's not of God. What's of God is glorifying him, being subject to him. God, what would you have me to do? Like we read, but Samuel,
0: here am I, your servant. Speak, I listen to you, (laughs) you know? Well, and what comes to mind for me is, because of my background, because of my background as a worship leader and everything in worship, verse 16 says, For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there in the world of worship leaders, let's just put it there. And I don't want to belabor this too much. You always have self seeking opportunities. You always have self serving opportunities. You have opportunities to promote yourself when you get on stage and you have the stage and the spotlight and the microphone. And you also, as a, as a pastor, as a public speaker, I mean, I've served in that realm too. Again, when you have the stage and the microphone and you have the crowd, and you have the attention, I think every young person getting into ministry has that dream of, man, I'm going to start doing this here, and in one day, three months from now, I'm going to be in front of a crowd of thousands. Yep. As soon as everybody sees me and realizes how super intelligent I am, and you just get up there, and it's like, although your intent is so right, you're... Ah oh, man you're self you're so self-seeking and you yeah. go up there and you have you look at the big names in Christianity and you say oh he's got a big platform I want a big platform and that envy comes in oh the Dave Crowder band is playing in front of thousands why am I only playing in front of hundreds oh I got to get some thousands you know mm-hmm. and it comes in on you and that's where I really recognize this verse from my own experiences As a worship leader, it's so easy to fall into this trap, this pitfall of when you get on stage and you have the mic and the spotlights and the command of attention in that moment to sit there and and to feel like you have something to prove, to feel like, okay, now I got to prove myself. And I think, honestly, I I don't like to talk too much about it, but I think a lot of worship leaders give into it whenever they, you know, the next thing they do after that is, okay, guys, um, My CD is out there on the, the merch table, yeah. and I've known a few. I've known a few worship leaders that were, I got a handful of songs I wrote, and, and a few of them are good friends of mine, so I have no problem talking about that, you know, because I love these guys. But, um, yeah, I think you're really scraping the boundaries at that point, personally. Well, and I
1: think this ties right into the lust of the flesh, Satan tickling the ears and kind of whispering, yeah. hey, you know, the vanity thing, so... Yeah, it's definitely something that leaders, leaders especially, as far as the self-seeking, the glory, need to always have that spiritual gut check, if you will, getting before God, getting real, getting humble, and saying, hey, I really want to be about your business, and it's about
0: you, not me. Right. Yeah. It's a maturing lesson that you learn the longer you're in ministry. You come to the point of saying, okay, well, I've been trying to push me for X amount of time. And I'm still right here now, yeah. you know, and I have friends that got to that point of like, you know, I've been trying to put out albums or whatever for so long. Nobody's buying them and I'm not booking shows. So maybe I put all that aside and I just try and just do honest worship for a while. And then they discover what they should have been doing the whole time.
1: Right. And that doesn't necessarily mean that all of a sudden they're in front of thousands. It just means no. that the ministry is rich and that it's real. It's genuine. And there's real ministry taking place through the, the ministry of music.
0: Yeah. Which goes right into store up treasures for yourself in heaven. I mean, it, it's what you should have been doing the whole time. And there's no guarantee that anybody's ever going to stand in front of thousands and it doesn't matter. That's right. You might not ever preach in front of thousands. You might not ever really worship in front of thousands. You might not ever even see a crowd of thousands right. that you're on the stage end. But man, in the end, it's like as long as you are doing it right, you're in the right standing with God, and that's all that can matter at the end of the day. Right.
1: All right, we're coming up on the home stretch here. We got a uh, we're on number 34, and we had 37. So this one is First Peter chapter 3,
0: 15 through 17. So starting in 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God. To suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So, the thing that jumps right out to me initially is always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That's the part that jumps out to me. We're going to get back to it because that's not 16. 16 is having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. So he's saying that you should be defending yourself, so that whenever people who come against you stand against you, or as he says, those who revile your good conducts, that they'll be ashamed because they have no ammunition against you. But I like what he says in fifteen, where he's saying, with meekness and fear, be ready to defend your faith.
1: Right, and the fear is not the fear of mankind. No, the either. fear is the fear of God. Again, we hold already- on. The fear of who? Of God.
0: Okay. <laughs> we should well, have talked
1: about that earlier. Yeah, I should say, um, maybe we can mention it here. Yeah. <laughs> so whenever we come before people, some of them will be hostile. Some of them will be genuine or some will be ready to hear the truth. And you know, it's, it's the world. You, you run across all kinds of people and we don't want to fear their response, their Actions, retaliation, whatever, negative, positive, we don't want to fear any of it. We fear God. We must be ready to give an account for the hope that we have. And then we act, we say what we're supposed to act and say as believers in this world. And then from that, whatever they do, whatever they say at that point, it doesn't matter. Again, verse 16, we're going to have a good conscience. Why? Because we're doing this in meekness and in fear we're doing the great commission, we're doing ministry, we're doing apologetics and all these good things that when they defame you as evil doers, well, we're not evil doers because we're doing what this says right here. Right. It's like what the Pharisees did with Jesus. They said that he was Beelzebub, the you know Lord of demons and evil spirits. They attributed his work to evil. That's straight up blasphemy there. you know, You're saying that the work of Jesus Christ is of demons. And right. so it's going to happen to us here you're wrong, you're hypocrites, you're evil, you're slanders, you're filling the blank, whatever. And then they're going to be ashamed. They're trying to bring condemnation on you. No, the condemnation will be on them because we're in the truth. And then again, verse 17, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So we're in the world right now. We're doing what's good. The world is not set up that way. The world does not want to reward righteousness. The world wants to reward evil. So therefore, the converse is, is that the world wants to punish good. So we're doing good, the world wants to punish you, persecute you, censor you, all these things. The Bible is saying it is better for you to suffer now of doing good in this fallen world than whenever we look at those who are doing evil and then they're going to suffer for the evil that they're doing now on the day of judgment. That's, right. that's it in its totality there. And this is an amazing truth. It's amazing encouragement. Again, we know the persecution that we're experiencing now. We know the persecution is going to ramp up as we get closer to the return of Jesus. And so those who are obeying God, you will be reviled. You will be put down, you'll be accused, you'll be defamed. And God says, hey, take heart. It's better for you to suffer in these things right now, trust me, than those who are doing evil. It's so plain, and this is great encouragement. And it's, it's reality. It's spot on. It's what we're up against right now.
0: Right, because right now you have the situation of an evil fallen world that does not want to deal with morality. And so the easiest way to not deal with morality is to debunk, if you will, the Bible, so let's fall back on science. What does science say? Oh, science says there's a big bang. That's entirely a theory. They can't prove it. But there was a big bang and it was 14 billion years ago. And before that, we don't really know what there was. Maybe the universe is eternal, in which case we can't explain that. Maybe it started with the big bang. We don't know. where did all the stuff come from? The big bang. Where did it come from before that? How did it all get in one place to explode out? We don't know. That's their answers. But people take it with, that's good enough to say that God didn't create it all, ergo remove the Bible, ergo remove the measure of morality so that I can sleep with 14 people a year or a month and I can do X number of drugs and I can drink all this and I can party and I can me, 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 me this life up without guilt and without the idea of somebody gets to tell me I did it wrong. And without the idea of there's punishment at the end for it all, the easiest way to do it is to attack the Bible.
1: Kind of got off on a tangent here, but this is just kind of pointing out some of the very specific things that's happening in this culture to whenever we try to do the right thing as Christians. So if you're going to be a good student in school, if you're going to be a good child and obey your parents, sorry, guys, I got to go home. I got to be home at 10 o'clock because that's what my parents said, Oh, come on, man. Like, dude, we're just yeah. fixing to go round in this game or whatever, you know, come on. I got to get home. You know, it's like there's this expectation of like, really? That's dumb. And you know, you can bring it all the way up into the adult world, you know, of, you want me to work this weekend? Like, I got to go to church. Like, dude, we have this deal to close. This yeah. has to be done. I take my family to church. You know, we see it all over the place. And, God is in control. He's going to judge all these societal things that have occurred and where it came from, and he's in control of all that, but we're going to suffer the persecution. We're going to be defamed. We're going to be persecuted because we're taking that stand against the flow of culture, society, the world, and their systematic norms, their political ideologies and political correctness and and things of that nature.
0: Right, and that's all I'm saying is I'm just saying that It's become an attack on the Bible, and by attacking the Bible, it's opened the floodgates to attack everything else to where now Christian morality is not something even to vote for. Like, what is the progressive movement? The progressive movement is, oh, we vote for everything practically that stands against Christian morals while the conservative movement is back there in the Bible Belt. You know, And you're not young, hip, or cool if you're not voting progressive
1: this kind of goes right into what we've talked about here with this next one. This is second Peter chapter three, verse 16. And there's two things I want to point out here with this that I think is important. So 15 through 16. And Peter writes and consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation as also our beloved brother, Paul, according to the wisdom given to him has written to you as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also to the rest of the scriptures okay i've got two things here let me point out the first one with paul and peter okay paul and peter were at odds a little bit in the beginning of if i could say of ministry okay not trying to throw down the timelines here but Paul was known as the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was more of an apostle to the Jews in the beginning. And they had their debate and their discussions about Jewish culture and Jewish customs for the Gentiles coming in and things that needed to be done, circumcision and these different Jewish things that were established, okay? When I say Jewish, I mean like, Old Testament law, the orthodoxy type setup. And Paul was saying, hey, no, that's not how it is. Jesus Christ's salvation's good enough for it all. And it is. And then Peter got the vision, we read about it in Acts, and then he started seeing that what God makes clean, it is clean. You know, speaking to that salvation is also for the Gentiles too, not just the Jews. The Bible says it was first for the Jews, then the Gentiles, but it's also for the Gentiles. So they settled all that out. But this is interesting how we have here this affirmation, this declaration of unity and respect and and mutual effort in the ministry of Jesus Christ's kingdom, where Peter is referencing Paul's writing. So there's some cool things in that. That's one of the things that stuck out. Now, switching into the heavy-hitting obvious stuff, what we were saying. Peter's warning about don't take the Bible and twist the scriptures and bend them to your own lust of the flesh, your own self satisfying self seeking things like what you were saying earlier about, well, I want to be famous. Well, you don't really say that it's what you want, but it's in the name of quote unquote ministry. So I'm going to go serve people, but yeah, of course I'm going to be up in front of them being a showman or something. And we need to be careful about this because, Many Christians or many churchgoers, they're lazy in that they do not study the Bible in order to have the discernment capability to identify, oh, that's not biblical right there. I know that because I just read the other day or I was doing a study on this about a year ago or whatever, right? They're staying in the word and, and letting that be their, like you said, their guide, their compass, their truth, their map. They're just not doing it. So they just because they're lazy well I'm gonna go stop by the church you know here's some good book and that's where I get my good book and that's whenever I hear the scripture and so you know if he's reading it, it must be true well yeah he reads two verses and then monologues for 30 minutes right. and his monologuing is just his opinion and you think it's scripture it's really not and so if we have the Bible then we can identify the
0: flaws and what's being said from the pulpit so anyway this is a pretty good one so then first John three sixteen. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So the Bible says that no man has greater love than one that would lay down his life for another, which is, these days, kind of an old-school notion, but like, if you watch the... I know this is so not the direction to run for an example, but if you watch like Captain America, the Avenger films, they really wrote Captain America's character to be that old school. They put a lot of Christian basis to him. Like there's a scene where he's jumping out of the plane and she tells him like, hey, you might want to sit down. These guys are gods. And he's like, there's only one God, ma'am. And he doesn't dress like that. And she jumps out the plane. Well, he has that very like, you know, and it, it's in the movie. He's talking about like that lay down the wire so that somebody else can survive in that same way I was raised the way my dad raised me is that the husband, the man should love your wife so much that you should be willing to die for her. That if it comes down to the two of you, you go first. That's just kind of how it is. That's how much you need to love your wife. And in the same way, that's the love that Christ had for the church that he laid down his life for the church. And in that same way, we should love one another. We should love the brethren. We should love fellow Christians. And we should not just communicate, but be willing to lay our life down for each other. And this is at a time in history when they were having to lay their lives down. Absolutely. It was a decent chance that it was going to be a death sentence
1: if you identified as a Christian publicly. Right. Especially in this day. And Connecting this directly to Christ himself, what did he do? Well, this isn't just fancy words in the Bible. He demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And there was that great exchange. We were sinners, he's righteous, he dies for our sins so that we become righteous through his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection. He fulfilled this. He did it. That's how much Christ loves us. He went all the way to the cross to death. And so yay and amen, that's our salvation. And this is a really cool verse. We, we talk about this a lot and what Christ did for us and why. Well, we read it before, he loved us. And that's how much. All right, the last one, the book of Revelation. I get to do this one. This is chapter three, verse 16, in case you're wondering. I'm gonna do verse 15 first. I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm, this is verse 16. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. This is what we end on.
0: Can I jump in right here? (laughs) I have, I have known more people, be it students or just student leaders who find this verse, they just grapple to it. And they're like, you see this? This is the modern church. This is the modern day, this is right now. And because you, because all of you, and all of us, because we're so lukewarm thinking about money, and girlfriends, and cars, and school, like school. There's no school in Jesus' day. And just thinking about all this school stuff and you're not thinking about Jesus, he's going to spit you out of his mouth. You need to get on fire for him tonight, right this moment, and never let that fire go out for the rest of your life or you're just going to end up in a puke bucket in heaven. (laughs) (laughs) And you listen to this and you just sit there thinking, that's a tall order. It's a very tall order to listen to if you don't get on fire for God right this moment, then you're just vomiting the toilet, flushed and on your way down. You know what I'm saying? Again, we just talked about all this grace, man. Grace washes over everything and there's more than enough grace for everything you can do. At the same time, there is still a point of repentance that's required. There is still a point of you need to be working toward, you can't just keep You can't keep just throwing it all away like, ah, whatever, I'll I'll get straight later. You do need to get straight with God, and you do need to have a progressive relationship with God. You do need to be working toward doing the things that are pleasing to God. But this idea that, oh, because your focus shifted for five minutes, that you were suddenly lukewarm, and now God's going to spit you out of his mouth if you can't rekindle the flame right this moment, I don't find that anywhere else in scripture except for right here in this one spot. And it's a letter to a church. It's not a letter to all Christians. Well, and to
1: go on with that, not everybody's called to be a pastor in a church. Not everybody's called to be a worship leader in a church, a Sunday school teacher in a church. And I'm trying to point out these formal points of ministry because the bulk of the church, the people that are born again, we are in this world we are going through this world. We are functioning in this world. So that means that we have careers, we have jobs, we have responsibilities that exist outside of the church buildings and the church businesses. And just because you're not involved in the church via a job and a career, doesn't mean that you're not serving God and following him. And as he leads you at your job or in your family or at school, yes we need to go and be good stewards with our time and our talents with our education so in school right we need to study hard and we need to make good grades now if they're teaching things that are not true in the bible well we have instruction on how to deal with that okay that doesn't mean that we switch our doctrine over in the name of making a good grade. No, if it just means, okay, I'm gonna study this and then I can take this test and I'll give the answers that this textbooks was pointing to, you can do that. It doesn't change your faith. You're going through the exercise of learning how to learn and then learning how to perform on a test and then trying to pick up the skill set that you're gonna need as you move towards your career. Same thing with the career in a business or at a company. You have a role there. That doesn't mean that they lord over your life, but it does mean that you're going to do what you're being compensated to do. And as you're rubbing elbows with the students or with your coworkers, you're going to live Christ out before them. Like what we've been talking about this whole time. And you're going to set apart that time in your life, your schedule to go to church or to do reading and devotionals in the Bible and so on.
0: You know, one of the coolest teachings I ever heard was from Louis Giglio, who's the head of the passion movement it has been around for, I don't know, over a decade now. And he was teaching this lesson and it was at the passion conference and it's been the whole weekend and I wasn't there. I saw, I saw it on DVD, but a friend of mine who was there was explaining to me like, yeah, this was like his last talk. And I was like, okay, that's cool. But so he gives this whole talk about, okay, yeah, you know, we've been here this whole week. We've been all passionate, but now you got to go home and what are you going to do? You're going back to college and this, that, and the other. And he gave this thing about not everybody's a worship leader and not everybody's a pastor. He's like, somebody in here is just really, really pumped up on the idea of making blue jeans. And he's like, and that's totally okay. Somebody has to make jeans. But if you're going to make jeans and he went off on this thing of like, this is how you be a good Christian business owner. And you pay your people, and you pay them extra when you can, and you give money back into the community and into the poor, you know, to do the services that God would do and, you know, and all these things. It's like there's Christian ways to do a normal job. And it was one of the coolest lessons I've ever heard because I'd never heard somebody give a lesson on, here's how to be just a good Christian business owner without feeling like you got to stitch John 316 into the fabric. You know what I mean? <laughs> But like, here's what a Christian business owner, here's what you would do. This is how you would treat your employees. And this is how you would interact with other people and other business owners so that they see Christ in you. And it was incredibly freeing in a way to see that and be like, oh yeah, you can just live normal life. Well, and I
1: think too, and I'm kind of tying back to what you mentioned earlier earlier from people who get on the pulpit and then they begin to try to be the Holy Spirit to convict them. So it's like what you're saying, you know, don't be that vomit. You know, you've got to be fully committed. Yeah. Okay. Let's define that fully committed. Yeah. I agree. You got to be fully committed to the Lord. I'm with you, but we're still in this world and we have to function in it on his behalf. We're the ambassadors, his hands, his feet, so on. Now there's kind of a standing joke that, you know, if you're called to ministry and if God's calling you to some you know, corner of the earth, deep woods, Amazon forest, you know, African Sahara plain or whatever. It's like, no, God may call you right back to where you just came from. God may have no intentions to move you around physically. You're going to go back to your family. You're going to go back to your whatever, your job. Hey, man, sometimes you got to, you know, move jobs. I get it because of God, because God's telling you to do that. Okay. I'm not saying that this is your free pass. God typically calls you to serve where you're at and where you're going. Right. Now, granted, if you're involved with something that's not biblical in your job or in school, then you get born again, then yeah, you're going to have to come out of it. So if we're in this world and we become born again along the way, then we need to serve God where we're at with what we know how to do, with what we're equipped to do, with the time that we have to do it in. And we need to be faithful in that. And God will open up doors along the way and he's going to close doors along the way as well, to keep you right where you're supposed to be. And yes, there will be movement. Things will open up and start up, and then things will shut down and close out, and you'll move into the new things until you're called home to be with him in heaven, okay? And it's kind of interesting. I wasn't even intending on talking about it until you said something, but you know, some people get guilty like, well, they have this all or nothing. Well, I can't be that missionary out on the other side of the world, so I'm just not going to do anything at all. They think that's the only call that exists. Right. If you're not, you know, you prove you're all in, you go now, you <laughs> know, you leave everything behind and that's not necessarily the case. Now, there are plenty of people who are missionaries. I'm not trying to do double speak here. I'm just saying like, it's between you and the Lord where you're called to be, but it needs to line up with the Bible. Okay. I'm not getting ridiculous with this and well, I think he's called me to do nothing. That's how he's called me to serve. No, <laughs> you get with the Lord and then he will begin to show you where you're supposed to be and how you're supposed to follow him and impact those around you along the way.
0: Well, and then there's also this, this modern idea of when dealing with the idea of what Christ said to the rich young ruler of saying, go and sell it all. And then come and follow me. And then we look at America and we look at our retirements and we look at all of our, our money and our finances, our investments. And people say, oh, you know, that's, you know, we got to sell it all, you know, or so then like you were saying, somebody goes into, um, missions. They liquidate everything. They find some churches to sponsor them and they go, but there's a point in the Bible where Paul writes to a church. He says, so that I wasn't a burden on you. I worked as a tent builder. In other words, I earned, I earned my own money. And like you were saying, we have to exist in this world and be a part of it, a functioning part of it. And this is just kind of like free on the end of the talk, but this idea of abandon everything and don't have retirement, all that, that would ultimately lead to masses of Christians falling back on the welfare system and then being a burden. You know what I'm saying? There's nothing wrong with that. And that was one thing I really appreciated about that talk where he's saying, yeah, you can be a business owner and you can do this. There's a, there's a godly format for that. There's a godly format for quote unquote non-godly jobs. And there's a way to do those things. We should probably talk about it one day. But as part of why I really appreciated that, because it it was saying it was him saying, like, there's nothing wrong with the American dream. There's really not. But there is biblical principles to still govern your life by to follow God's word. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to sell everything and you're not allowed to have a retirement and you have to cut your salary off at some point. I will say that me personally, I feel like pastors should have a cap to their salary. Um, but there's not a reason to cap your salary. There's not a reason to feel like, oh, I now make so much money that I fall into the place that Christ was talking about, that it's easier for a camel to go through the needle's eye for than for me to get into heaven. What do I do?
1: Yeah, well, I think there's some good discussion there, and I don't want to belabor this on and on, but whenever someone begins to come into wealth, whether it's an inheritance or their hard earnings or investments or what have you, you know, it's about being a good steward with that. What can you do with that in order to serve the Lord? Maybe that person's in position to do something mightier with tools such as finances in order to produce a greater impact into this world for the kingdom of God. And I don't know what that means. You know what I'm saying? It could mean, you know, assisting with churches all around the world. It could mean helping to print and ship Bibles. It could mean developing seminary for future pastors. I mean, I don't know. It could be Christian and family counseling and all these things. We can go on and on and on. But the thing is, is about being a good steward. Just because someone has money doesn't mean that that's not godly. It's what you do with what you have. Someone can be poor and wretched versus someone rich and wretched, whatever. It doesn't matter. It's about the soul and then what you do with everything that, that God has given you. Because even the poorest people in America are just rich compared to the rest of the world. Right. I mean, so we're measuring this against the American standard versus the world. What does the rest of the world do? We've talked about this a long time ago. So let's get real with it. If you're listening, let's get real with it. I mean, where are you at with God, with what you have, and how are you using it to do ministry? Your time, your talent, your capability, your finances, the support that you have around you, what are you doing with it? We all have to give an account for what God has given us and allowed us to use. So is it all about self-satisfaction and only pleasuring yourself, you know, whether it's whatever, whatever you want to do, your hobbies and stuff. But if there's no, we just come off of Revelation chapter three, verse 16 about, you know, I wish you were hot or cold talking about this commitment, talking about, are you fully allowing me to be your Lord or kind of sorta, or not at all. It's a good evaluation in a way. It's kind of a crazy one to end on, but look at the conversation that we have with, again, evaluating yourself, you know, as you get with God, it's a good encouragement. I think it's a good one to
0: end on. Right. Well, and the whole idea of, are you lukewarm? Are you hot? Are you cold? You can be hot and live any life that you want to live. And you can be cold and live any life that you want to live because the Bible says that God judges the heart. It's a good discussion, good challenge. I hope that
1: that that one um, prompts everyone listening to get with the Lord,
0: kind of get that good time, healthy time of evaluation. All right. So with that, we're going to wrap this up. Again, we do appreciate everybody who does listen. If you do enjoy the show, find us on iTunes. Give us a rating. Five-star ratings are appreciated. But give us a rating, like, share with a friend, subscribe. Um, I got a call from a friend of mine the other day about Minicast 2, and she was just saying, I love this, and I'm sharing it with everybody in this group that I'm teaching. And I was like, see, that's what Phil and I want. That's one person to find it, find them well, and then they take it to everybody else and say, this is something you need to hear. This is something that needs to be said and I'm glad somebody said it.
1: Yeah, it's kind of interesting and it's kind of a side note here at the end on that. And it's happened a few times before, like where you'll see one pop up in a specific area of the nation or the world or something, mainly the nation, and then like you'll see a bunch of them, same area on the same episode you're like, Okay, I know what happened. (laughs) Right. It's like, hey, check this one out. So it's kind of cool when it happens. You know, you can kind of identify it.
0: One person found the podcast randomly and then, hey, y'all should listen to this. And like six other people listened to it. Yeah. In
1: that area. Like you'll see, like it's, okay, it's this city. Yeah. It's right here.
0: Two days ago, we had a listen in Peru. And today we've got seven more listens in Peru. (laughs) Yeah. So,
1: (laughs) hey, in Peru, if you're listening, I'm being serious. Probably going to talk about Nephilim. And uh, the Peruvian skulls a little bit, so. All right then. Yeah. The bound skulls yeah. to elongate them. No, they weren't bound. That was the other thing. We'll talk more about it later. But yeah. no, they're, they were Well, weren't. there's no. both. There's the elongated, then yes. there's the ones but that But they were weren't bound. the elongated. in this way of like where they manipulated. We're getting off into this already. <laughs> Sorry. It's coming up. <laughs> we'll talk about it later.
0: It's we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. All right. Thank you for listening. Everybody have a good day. Okay, ready? Oh, you didn't bring your filter bottle today? No, oh, got it straight up. Slumming with the rest of us. Yep. BPA. <laughs> Nothing says loving my BPA. Okay,
1: all right, so this is going to be a standalone episode. It's not a mini-cast, so I'm just going to just
0: go. You don't think it's a mini cast? <clears throat> You don't think you can do all this in 50 minutes? Seven pages. Yeah, but it's only 37 verses, so technically that's a minute and change for each verse. Can you
1: do it? It's seven pages, dude. Do you think we can do seven pages with all the commentary that quick? We are not to find out. I don't want to say a mini cast because I'm afraid it's going to be past that. I don't want to put it together. Nah, just do a welcome. Okay. Don't do the welcome. No. Don't do that? That's you, But that's what I do. It's the only thing I know to do. It's all I got. I got one move and I do it. All right, here we go. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, it
0: worked. Alright. All right. <clears throat> Hold on, let me get right. let me read the first couple so Oh, so it's the discipline on gonna... this?
1: Of course. Do you wanna to try to alternate? <clears throat> you take one, I take one. Yeah. Yes we can. Alright.
0: Okay, so exodus is
1: Yeah, again, right here, this is like a little overview. I just, dude, I really... Focus, brother, focus. This is your notes. This is all you've got. But I have highlighted that is
0: the overview. I got that, and I got a pizza downstairs. We're not going to make it. (laughs) You ready?
1: Yeah, I am if you are.
0: You're the one cocking
1: this shotgun, dude. All right, so are we going to alternate? Yeah, we'll try that. (laughs)
0: Until it fails. (laughs) Until it fails. (laughs)
1: Okay, here we go. And so I'm like... Okay. Stop it. Stop it. Okay, here we go.
0: <clears throat> me, 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 me. So <laughs> you can't correct me and be like... Oh, no, all right, dude, here we go. All right, here we go. <laughs> That's way cooler when I do it. All right. What we need is... We'll go. the uh, the two Muppets from the Muppet Babies, the two critics up in the booth... <laughs> Well, wasn't half bad. Well, it wasn't half good either. (laughs) (laughs) All right, here we go.
1: (laughs) 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 Really? You have two of those over there, too. This
0: This one's dry.
1: All right, put it up there. Next, that other one that does that. (laughs) Wow. All right, here we go. Prominent, very... um, you know, it, it peaks. The dude, this microphone is just bouncing. You gotta quit that. I'm sorry. It is, it's just in my face, just bouncing.
0: I know. I was watching. It like, I cannot believe it. me over here. Yeah,
1: like, yeah. Can, can we not do that? I don't even know where I'm at
0: now. So the peak yeah. pinnacle. That's where you're at. Try to find a word
1: for his wife. So it's not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing in the way of the husband will
0: provide. Right. And I mean, you and I are both husbands. If you go to Ephesians, like we're talking about. Stop. We are married to our wives. You and I are not both husbands. Just want to clarify that.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: Okay. So, and you and you and I are both married. So stop. <laughs> we we have our own relationships. I have a wife. You have your wife. Yes. So. So you and I are both involved in heterely sexually based relationships. Monogamous relationship.
1: Yes. Go ahead.
0: I don't know about monogamous, but
1: <laughs> whoa! Okay, all right, we'll cut that out. Oh man.
0: Um. <laughs>
1: right, let's go.
0: We're in the first burst. Yeah, this is
1: all gonna be. This will be bloopers right here. <laughs> all right, go ahead and cut all this out. Let's get. Let's keep rolling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh Dude, this God. is right. the first one. I'm we trying got,
0: so hard. We got 36 more to go, man. Uh, so if you look at, so if you look at Ephesians chapter five, though, what it says is, like you say,
1: sacrificial death of himself, and we are called to be the protector, the fighter, the warrior of our homes. Well, the man and a gun, whatever tools necessary, absolutely. <laughs> Come and take it. This podcast brought to you by <laughs> Savage Arms. Yeah, <laughs> um, no, hacky Trigger. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's a blooper now. Okay, that's going in.
0: Okay, so then in Exodus 3.16, um, you're in the situation with the burning bush, which is... Um, Moses? Moses. I was, okay. All I could think was Noah. Start over. Well, what do you do here? You got two women here saying, that's my baby, and this is before the days of DNA testing. So, what do you do? do well, you threaten the child? <laughs> See which one cares? Well, obviously... Right. <laughs> I mean. Obviously you order a soldier to slice a baby in half, which is gonna ruin his day. Equally. Equally. Yeah, equally. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's not the soldier, maybe they called the royal chef, like, hey, you do portions, right? Yeah. You're good with a knife. Um so yeah, that was an interesting story. As in the inner sanctuary and put them on top of the pillars, and he made one hundred pomegranates. Really? The pomegranates. Am I saying that right? Yeah. How do you make a pomegranate? You did it. And he made one hundred pomegranates. And then the king turns to the guy next to him and says, "It sounds like a joke setup, right? It sounds, yeah. like, it sounds like a punchline coming." <laughs> there is a punchline though. Yeah. It was like the king turns to the guy next to him and says, um, "Didn't we throw in three men?" He's like, "Yeah, we throw in three guys." And they're the two, like, primary authors in the New Testament. They're the two that everybody goes back and forth about.
1: Well, Jacob did. He was changed to Israel. That's Old Testament.
0: And Abram. <laughs> old Testament. Are you going to keep going with this? I'm talking about the Jesus renamed. Lucifer changed to Satan. <laughs> Who did Jesus rename? He
1: calls him the devil, the old serpent, Satan. You're grasping at straws. I'm
0: grasping at the truth. Anyway, we Anyways, so New Testament-wise, Christ renames two people. Well, I'm just saying, you go from Simon to Peter and Saul to Paul. Now, in the original Greek or whatever it was, it might have been wildly different letters. But in the English translation, it fascinates me. I never really thought about that, S to
1: P. Hmm, Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. It didn't work for Satan, does it? <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving along. Luke chapter 3, verse 16. Since mine was short, I'm going to take this one because that way I can speak
0: on a longer one. So if you change his name from Satan to Pwned. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, it totally didn't apply. Um,
1: I looked in the Gospel of John. I couldn't find anything. Uh, There's nothing major in John chapter 3,
0: verse 16. Oh, let's blow past it then. Oh, you want me to read it? Yeah, go ahead. Um, <laughs> I thought we were just going to read. No, this is
1: how it all started.
0: So, John 3.16.
1: <laughs> <laughs> is, I don't know why we're why we laughing. <laughs> because,
0: anyway, go ahead. Because this is literally where 3.16 came from. Yeah. Well, and then Ecclesiastes, it says there is a time for war. There's a time for peace. There is a time to die. There's a time to live there's a t- everything has a season. Turn, turn,
1: turn. Um. And this is very key. Again, another linchpin of truth of our doctrine about salvation. And so another chapter three, verse sixteen. That's
0: all you're gonna say about
1: it. Go on. I don't know
0: what you wanna say. No, I mean you summed it up well. I'm just wondering I really thought you were gonna run with Romans. Go ahead, you can run Romans. Okay, so First Corinthians three. Oh, hold on a second. Do you want to talk about fear of God? Talk about what? The fear of God. In Romans.
1: It says it right there in verse eighteen.
0: All right, never mind. I feel like you're. I feel like you're doing this. You're going. There's a can of worms on the table. It's not open. Do you want But there's a can opener right next to it. I'm just saying they don't have to go together. But look at me. What are you going to do when there's a can and a can opener in the room? You know what I'm saying? And the worms need out. We can't go fishing without worms if you know what I'm saying.
1: All right, so do you want to just move on? No. Do oh. you feel like fear of God? All right, here we go. And as far as verse 18, it says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. So I would refer you to episode two, where we talk about the fear of God. Because that's, there's so much there. Did you get enough worms? I think we got them. (laughs) All right, go ahead. Colossians 3, 16, and 17. This is everything to a Christian believer. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Oh, sorry, I went too far. (laughs) That's verse 18. But it's still the word. (laughs) Right. Um. that's another lesson for another day. Right? And the fear is not the fear of mankind. No. The either fear either. is the fear of God again. We Hold on. In... The fear of who? Of God.
0: Okay. <laughs> we should have well,
1: talked about that earlier. Yeah. I was going to say, um, maybe we can mention it here. Yeah. <laughs> can you give me that can opener. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, sorry. Was, no.
1: Go ahead. Yeah.
0: What are, what are you going to say? I was just gonna wrap it up. Okay.
1: I mean, yeah, you can. That's are you good or what? No, I didn't have anything else. I don't know how we're gonna close it out. Like,
0: I was just gonna wrap it. Okay.
1: What are you gonna say?
0: With what? How are we gonna close it out? I was just gonna say with all that, you know, brings us to an end. Like, subscribe. Go read the rest of the Bible.
1: Well, I was thinking with the like, subscribe, like, be a little bit more uh, intentional versus just like, subscribe, because I think people just like. Um, to it in a way that's
0: like prompts a thought. Go donate to us on Patreon. We don't have a Patreon. There we go. All right. Go ahead. You got uh, it. that's fine. Uh, with all that said, just uh, I said it now, so now my head's like, that's where I need to go. Uh, oh yeah.